come, draw close, and feel the power of the Herdstone. Your best location for Warhammer Fantasy Battle lore, hobby, and gameplay discussion. Graham McNeil is book one in the Sigmar series. We've all read it. We're ready to discuss it, and we're excited that you're here with us today. But before we jump into the book, uh, we are going to talk a little about hobby, what's going on and everything. So how is everyone doing today? Doing well. Doing good. All right. Glad to see two of you are doing well. Doing well. Okay, good. <laughs> Carrie's in now. All right. I guess Mike. Oh, hot time Mike's in the house. Doing great. Okay. Thanks for asking. Good, good. Needed a personal invitation. Got it. Live from the hot tub. <laughs> That's right. Are, yeah. Are you in a hot tub right now, Mike? No, I'm in my office with my new microphone. I, I got it for the people because I sounded terrible the last <laughs> couple of episodes. All right. Well, what's what's going on? What have you been working on? For me, it's New Year, New Army. I'm still working on my, my Orson Goblins a little bit, but I've decided to join the ranks of the Dark Elves, working on some Witch Elves current. I'm doing a Witch Star and Cauldron of Blood that uh, I'm excited to see what it looks like all together. And you're using the pretty traditional paint scheme on the Witch Elves from what I've seen. Is that right? What are you doing there? Yeah, for the most part. So they're from Harganeth. It's the northernmost city, so I've got snow on the bases. And then it's just super pale, almost chilled skin with the red and the gold from the box art mostly. I'm kind of a sucker for the box art. They're looking great so far. And I'd have to say, though, I am disappointed that you have been painting them even slower than Mike's two models a night. You may have to speed up on that. I know, right? Or what about everybody else? I attempted to break myself out of a bit of a funk with painting by joining the Little War. A shout out to that. It's on the Discord. I set myself the lowest possible model count for complete completion by picking Famir, who due to obscenely high points cost, I could manage the entire challenge in five models. <laughs> I've yet to undercoat anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're undercoating by hand, that's got to take at least half of the time that you've allotted. <laughs> well, due to um, moving my home office into the hobby room, I now don't tend to psychologically want to go in there outside of work hours, which was a really bad idea. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, is anyone else working on the Little Wa? And that's Anna, who is one of the Discord users, has very graciously sponsored the Little Wa. So it's over two months of time, January and February. You have to paint up a 500-point army, so following the construction of whatever edition that you play you have to paint that up so uh, for me for example i'm also taking part in that i chose skaven which is the opposite of what carrie did which is tons and tons of models so i have to paint up 20 storm vermin 15 plague monks a rattling gun a warlord and a doom wheel i have remaining 15 storm vermin and storm vermin are my least favorite models to paint in this army uh, i don't know why i love the models they're some of my favorite skaveny models but i'm just not enjoying painting them i don't know what they're called the the skaven long rifles didn't you finish those recently that was procrastination from the little wall got it i painted those instead and i painted six gutter runners but they deserve to be painted because uh, they played really well against mike in a game they they killed five mounted yeoman a trebuchet and uh one of the pegasus knights so so they deserved to get painted up Agreed. I should say, Mike still beat me. He got a dual charge with his uh, two two of his night buses onto my storm vermin, and they skittered away. 
So uh, Mike did a great job and, and got that victory. Credit where credit's due. I made a pledge for the little wah, which I've done nothing on. <laughs> Just in a rut right now as far as hobbying goes. But I did get a game in, which was nice. We did a six players, 1,500 points each battle royale. And we randomly drew chaos armies so there was like chaos demons and mortals and what was it nurgle mortals demons there was a bunch to choose from and i got demons of slanesh and did not do very well (laughs) but it was fun nevertheless it's always good to together with the guys and roll some dice didn't the the winds of chaos or whatever it is that you do with the magic dice isn't that what didn't that mess you over like first turn or was it something else uh no i you might be thinking i my deployment area was like boxed in by a river and of course as soon as i rolled it it was a river of light so like every (laughs) unit that i had moved through and was just like getting pounded by light magic which as you know is not good for demons so no that's not what you want that was not good and then i believe three of the lords on the table were killed by infernal gateway at one point or another in the that's what I was battle. So that was fun as well. Mine, one of the other demon players, and then I think the person who Infernal Gatewayed both of us also got Infernal Gatewayed by another player. <laughs> as is as is right. As is yeah, right. It was beautiful. Well how long does a six player game last? I think it took us six or seven hours, but you know, we're all chatting and not paying attention to the game like we should be. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's but it was a good time. That's a fun part. You get to know each other, hang out with friends. Absolutely. Yeah, so for me, I've been uh, painting Dark Elves the last year or so. I've really been painting a lot of Dark Elves. Still not really quite where I want it to be with regards to getting it on the tabletop consistently. But I've just finished uh, painting 30 Dread Spears, and I think I'm going to have a unit of 40 Dread Spears here soon. And I played a couple games, uh, took my Bretonians out against Ryan a couple weeks ago against his new Skaven. Had a lot of fun at our FLGS and then last weekend, uh, I played my buddy Sean with my vampire accounts and uh, had a good time as well. It was the first time I was using a couple of models, first time using my, my new Vargolf and uh, did poorly, of course. And uh, the other guy I was using, it was new, I think was my mounted uh, mounted vampire and he didn't do anything either. So that's, that's pretty far for the course with regards to newly painted models. Absolutely. It's funny how much the banner for those Dread Spears really brings the whole block together. It looks really great. So, Mike, you're doing that pinkish color, right? It's not even purpley. It's just straight pink. What is it? Yeah, my Dark Elves have a uh, a pink and black color scheme, kind of like a, a, a nod to Slanish. You know, I've kind of I kind of enjoy the lore around Dark Elves and Slanish and how they kind of intersect, and it's it's not really very well developed, but there's something there, just kind of. So I don't know. I'm going with that. Yeah, they look great. They look great. I'd have to say I made the mistake of taking my ethereal Slan against Mike when he first played his uh, Dark Elves, and that was probably not great because the magic was just pretty crazily overpowering, which wasn't great for Dark Elves. I'm learning. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't my best choice for uh, someone else learning their army. In other news, GW has recently released on the Warhammer community page an article telling us a little bit more about the old world. And of course, I use recently with a little bit of flexibility since we are a monthly podcast. But what did we learn? What did y'all think? Did that change anyone's minds? What's going on? Uh, what was the most recent one? It was the more details about the three emperors. 
It was not a map. That's right. It was more about the the time period that we would be in. Actually, I do think it did. It have a map because it was telling us about the regions of the empire that it would be covering in the old world. I think so. I think it just showed where the the home bases, as it were, of the three emperors. I liked it a lot. It made me hopeful that we're going to get upgrade sprues or individual units for each of the different factions, like maybe some Ulrich themed stuff for Middenheim and some stuff for the other stuff. It would that would be really cool. Uh, so I hope that ends up coming to fruition. Well, Brian, speaking of Imperial packs and what that might look like, I know that one of the users of the Discord, Cornello, asked a question specifically for Mike. Could you speculate on the release date for the old world and what will be in the starter box? Mike, can you can you tell us about some of that stuff? This is never gonna get old. I feel like this is this is definitely something we've discussed before. I I'm almost certain that you guys forced me to uh, give some sort of prediction with regards to a release date, and I probably said like 2025 or uh, the infinite future. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean they they've leaned kind of heavily into into the Kislev, so I feel like maybe Kislev and Warriors of Chaos or some sort of Warriors of Chaos with like a real Norse kind of leaning to it might be a, a reasonable uh, supposition or guess. Um, so I'll go with that. And I think, I thought there was something that happened between now between now and the previous recording that made it seem like the old world might actually be coming out sooner than 2025. I think Ryan was all happy about that for some reason. First of all, I'm going to be happy if it comes out this year because that was my prediction on our game pod. Or our, our introductory podcast was that it would come out in 2023. And I think all of you chose 2024, if I uh, remember correctly. So if it comes out before that, for the 40th anniversary of Warhammer, uh, I'll be sitting pretty. I, I don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, we're in 2023. They haven't said anything. So I'm feeling pretty soured on that. Um, but they did say something about the 40th anniversary. And so that suggested maybe that there would be I don't know, some sort of announcements about when it would happen or what the box would be or whatever. So uh, I'm thinking maybe we see some model previews this summer or something something like that. Any other thoughts on that uh, that announcement and, and what was going on? I just like that they mentioned Talibime because that just means I'm ready to go with my massive empire army oh is yours talibine themed yeah very cool i don't what was the character name of the emperor i can't remember what it was there's some guy i'd never heard of but uh, i was like yeah that's my guy i gotta be honest i cannot keep track of empire provinces which is probably not good for us reviewing this particular book i can't remember but the other thing that cracked me up and got people riled up was when they specifically said that the end times happened. So like mm-hmm. signaling, this isn't an alternate time. This isn't like a different timeline that's going to reset the Warhammer world and it's going to go and it's it's going to go differently this time and we're not going to have the Age of Sigmar. They were like, no, shut up, Grognards. The end times happened. Age of Sigmar occurred. This is just in a period prior to that. And that cracked me up that they specifically wrote that in. Yeah, some people got really mad. Some people got really upset. They were just like, oh, GW had to mention that, didn't they? The the way it was placed and the tone of it just seemed petty. From what I recall, when I read it, when I was reading the initial release, I was just like, this is unnecessary and just seems spiteful. That was my takeaway. 
Wait, Mike, are you one of the people that believes that anything GW does is specifically because they actually hate their fans? Because those people crack me up. This gaming company is doing stuff specifically to spite their fans so that, I don't know, their fans don't buy from them. It just cracks me up when people think that. Well, I mean, it could have just been one dude. I mean, I don't, I don't know what this, the safeguards around <laughs> Warhammer community releases are. <laughs> All right, so we, we kind of have an update on what's going on. Uh, last question about hobby and stuff like that. Have there been any new models or ranges uh, that GW has produced that you look at and you think, oh, that's going to look great in fantasy? I'm looking forward to the skink light cavalry they've just previewed simply because I do not want to pay the current eBay prices for the Skink Light Cavalry Regiment Renown, so I'll happily pay GW prices, which, even how with how high they are, will be less than those metal will be. Yeah, those looked great. They looked fun. And they had Addle Addles, if uh, no one noticed that. That was pretty cool. Is that Eensy Weensy, Carrie, that you're yeah. referring to? Yeah. Yeah, yeah those, are, those are classic models. No, not since they released the Cold One uh, Knights from, like, 2008. What about the cold one since 2008? You were like, "Is are you guys excited about any new models? And I was like, That's oh. not since like the cold one nights released in like 2008. Those were, those were fire though. Oh, gotcha. I think we can expect a Croxagore to be popping up soon. It seemed like that was the latest, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's their hint thing that they do where they tease them all. Oh yeah, their rumor engine. Yeah, that's what it is. Did they say in that article that that was only about half the new range for yeah. Blizzard? Yeah. What was shown was... Saurus, so new Saurus infantry, and they look beefy and fabulous. They're not nearly as serpentine as the current ones. Then they've got those skink cavalry that have, I think they have blowpipes, but I did not like the blowpipes. They look like, like space blowpipes or something. I don't know. They were really weird. Uh, but they had Adelatles, which made me happy. And they showed a Slon. So in addition to the recent Croak model, they also have a new Slon in Palaquin, and that looked great. Although I think everything is sized up, might be tough to put on a 25 mil. Yeah, I was going to say the Saurus seemed um, uh, kind of difficult to put on a, a 25 square just because of the tail sticks out almost as far as the body. Yeah, it definitely needs to be some like creative use of space where some of the Saurus are angled up so that their tail is lower. Some of them are angled to the side so that, it, you know, you may have to do that to, to get those to fit, or they may not fit at all. The revitalization of the diagonal armies. Oh, yeah, the diagonal slaughters. So one thing that I was really excited about, and this isn't new models, but it was something that I had never thought about using before. Um, someone on the Discord used some, what are they? What are the, what are the orc biggins in space? What are the, what are the 40k orcs Oh, the called? knobs? Knobs, thank you. Yeah. Clearly I play 40k. Uh, I do not. <laughs> um, someone used the knobs and then they like fantasized them and took away all their guns and stuff and used them as biggins. And uh, they only come in boxes of five, so I don't think I'm going to buy like eight boxes of five 40. knobs to get 40 biggins uh, of them. But I think spacing them out within some units of like the regular sized orcs from fantasy to make a unit of biggins with like some of them just being bigger with big axes and stuff. I think that's a really cool idea. Uh, and so I may try that when I get to my orcs. Yeah. We've actually had a, 
like an influx of orc players in the Discord. There's been a lot of orc posts lately. I approve. Oh yes. I feel like we've had a lot of dark elf posts. People are into it. People they've heard about it. They heard HTM was into it, and they were like, "We're gonna get on board. Dark elves is the way." They were searching for the dark elf Discord, and naturally, they were pointed in our direction. Seen a lot of purple name tags these days. Dark elf people, edge lords, worry me. No, 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 no. Hot to Mike and Brian are not edgelords. We are very cool. <laughs> That's exactly what an edgelord would say. But I do think it's cool. We've, got, we've gotten a number of new people in the Discord. Uh, really cool different painting styles and different excitement. So... Uh, that's really cool. So this would be a good moment to plug the Discord. If you're wondering how you can get in touch with any of us, uh, you can do so by uh, joining the Warhammer Fantasy, the Old World Discord. We hang out there. We have fun. We chat. uh, We talk about hobby stuff. We've got a lot of contests, painting contests going on all the time. You can see models. You can see battle reports. You can talk tactics. Or you can just shoot the breeze talking about uh, Warhammer Fantasy. So uh, come on down to that, and uh, I hope that you have fun if you do so. All right, well, I'm glad everybody's getting games in or getting some painting done or having fun. Uh, But without any further ado, we are going to jump into the no-spoiler phase of Helden Hammer. So if you're someone who's thinking you may want to read this yourself and you don't want to hear all the spoilers, you're still safe. I'll let you know when we move to the spoiler phase. So let's talk about the general information. This is a book by Graham McNeil. He wrote all three of the Sigmar series. So this is one of three books. This is Heldenhammer, and then there's Empire and God King. He's also written a number of other fantasy books and some 40K Horus Heresy stuff that we're not going to spend time talking about. Uh, Has anyone read any of his other stuff? Mm, I have not, no. I have read The Ambassador. I guess it was two books. Uh, Urson's Teeth and uh, uh, the other one. And The Ambassador. The Ambassador. Well, yeah, it was The Ambassador and Urson's Teeth. I think those are the only two. I don't think it's a trilogy. Yeah, I read that. It was probably 15 years ago now, though. So, What are those centered on? Are they are they also Empire or human-centered, or are they something else? Yeah, they're Empire-centered. Uh, it tells the story of the Empire's ambassador to the court of Kislev and, you know, all of his... Uh, he's an old general, I think, if I recall correctly, and, you know... Uh, he eventually gets called to war, but it also there's intrigues at court and, and all, all that type of stuff. So his his thing up there in the uh, in the capital. All right. Um, has anyone else read any? These okay. are unread people, Brian. As I think I said maybe before we started, I think I'm the person with the least amount of lore knowledge of the Warhammer world because I just started reading. Basically, for this podcast, I'd read the Orion trilogy and the Stone and Steel stuff about dwarves, and that's it. Like, even when I played before, I didn't even read the lore section of most of the army books, or at least not to any great degree. So, I think I'm the least lore savvy of the people here. I think this is only the third or fourth Black Library book I've read. So, well, never mind. Evan doesn't. Evan doesn't know what he's talking about. I am vastly more knowledgeable than Evan. May have you beat on that that ignorance front. <laughs> I've read a fair few of the Black Library books, uh, a lot of them a long time ago now. But I think the real lore, the real lore people are like the people who are really into the RPG stuff. I think that's where they get a lot of their depth. Yeah, but but let's be honest. Other than Carrie, do you really want to be one of those people? <laughs> well, I don't play. I don't play RPGs, but. Uh... 
there's a surprising amount of people on our discord who have time for warhammer fantasy battles and like 10 other gaming hobbies and uh it's amazing to me because i feel like i only have time for one yeah yeah that's impressive oh it does look like we're getting carry back so that's good um well thank god we're saved (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness we're not gonna have to rely on my lore knowledge to to survive this Apparently, I'm the person with the second most lore knowledge. <laughs> oh, Carrie's back. We made it. We're going to survive. Thank you, Carrie, for, for coming back. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, we're all just excited you're here. <laughs> okay, should we get started while I've actually got a connection that works? <laughs> yeah, we're. So I just talked about Graham McNeil being the author. We talked about some of the books that he's read. And then I asked, has anyone read any of his other books? So if you want to start with that, if you've read any of his other books, you can say something there. Uh, Mike already talked about The Ambassador and Urson's Teeth. I've read those as well and intend to reference them quite heavily when it comes to our Ride to the Dead review in two months. If you've read Guardians of the Forest, Defenders of Ulthuan, or Sons of Illyrion, you can talk about those too. All I've read of that list is those two and then 40k, 30k stuff that we won't get into too much. That's exactly what I said. We're not yeah. getting into that stuff. Keep yeah. that far away. Me and Carrie don't read none of that elf book stuff. <laughs> oh, elf, elf book stuff is great. <laughs> now, um, Guardians of the Forest, that's about beastmen, right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it not? What is it about? Is there a beastman book? Uh, oh, there's some beastmen in this book that we just read. Very lightly. Not, not I know that there's a beastman-centered book. There should be. Oh, absolutely, there should be. Well, you know what? I think that there used to be beastman book, but they destroyed them. <laughs> they were like, it's a book. We have to destroy it. Yes, it's about us, but... Their culture is not a written culture. No, no. <laughs> no. It's an abrasive culture. Oh, jeez. Uh, 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 Actually, I've just realized, no, there is something else of his I've read. Um, of Ice and Snow. It's a novella he did for the End Times. Yep. It's a sequel to The Ambassador and Urson's Teeth of a sort. And it actually has a running section where you're in the per- in the perspective of the Beastmen. Oh, oh, there you go. It's all well, coming there you go. full circle. You're a relatively new mutant who is basically... <laughs> you're being the sidekick of Ungral Forhorn, who is that the, mm. the least important Beastman special character. So, And you get such beautiful things as you're trying to give your intelligence report from spying and he's just defecating right in front of you and sort of grinding it into the snow with his hoof. Maybe we don't need a Beastman book. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good idea. All right, so in this book, Heldenhammer, that we're talking about today, who are the races involved? So if someone's interested in specific factions, what factions do we see? It's rain and men. <laughs> there are a lot of tribes of men in this book. And if you... Don't look at the glossary occasionally. You're going to get very confused. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting after reading the book, you go back and cross-reference the uh, Empire Army books from 6th, 7th, or 8th edition, and you kind of connect the dots between the provinces of the modern, I guess what was at the time the modern empire and uh, what the tribes were. And that's, that's kind of the setting for our story and uh, tells, uh, tells us all about those guys. To put this in a sort of historical law context... We're post-War of the Beard. We're into 
this period where the great superpowers of the ancient world, the El- the El- Elven Empire and the Dwarven Empire, have beaten each other half to death and have both pulled out of their colonies, their sort of zones of influence in what would become the Empire and Bretonia. Within that power vacuum, the human tribes have really come into their own and are essentially replaying late Iron Age, early classical themes of state building. I didn't even make that connection that the power vacuum here and why like the humans are able to develop but why there's also issues with what, what's going to happen, who's going to come into this power vacuum. It's not just the humans. I never made that connection that it was because of the War of the Beard and that they fall pulled out. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. I don't believe it's mentioned in the book at all because Sigmar doesn't have any of that context, I don't think. Sigmar doesn't have any of that context, but Kurgan Ironbeard certainly does. And we, I've actually got quite a lot to say about what, I don't think he ever lets on, does he? I mean, we're going to go into spoiler territory if we go down this route. Can we come back to this? So the people in the book don't necessarily know, or at least the humans in the book don't necessarily know why um, this space is given where they're developing, but then there's threats from outside. They don't know why that's happening, but I had not made that connection, and that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, Brian, you had something I think you wanted to say? I was going to ask, since the War of the Beard was brought up, do did the High Elves ever colonize parts of the Empire, or was it just... Because in, in Bretonia, I know they have those watchtowers along the coast where they had, they had colonized. So the, the High Elves had a presence where Marienburg later is, and within the book, the Endals have moved out of the way of the Jutonis as they have colonized into what is now the, we- the Wasteland, the Westerlands. And the Endels have moved into the old elven ruins, and that's their new capital at Marienburg. There are dotted elven ruins around the Empire that occasionally come up within other novels. But if we're talking imperialistic terms, this was a soft power region between the empires of the dwarves and the elves. This isn't like Bretonia or Talia, where they, there were elven cities all over the place. Okay, interesting. My memory of it was the War of the Beard was set uh, in Bretonia, basically, and the Empire didn't really see conflict between the, the dwarves and the elves. It wasn't really a, a playground of that. Pre-Bretonia, right, I guess, because Bretonia doesn't exist. But yeah, that, that space. So what we have here is the dwarves getting involved in the development of what becomes the Empire, but implementing uh, tr- trade agreements and essentially sharing technology and boosting certain human tribes above others to try and create unity long term. This is actually quite similar to what the Wood Elves and the Elves and Liliath later do, do with Bretonia, except the Dwarves are far more upfront about what they're doing. So <clears throat> your mileage may vary on does this make the Dwarves better people, or are they just doing exactly the same thing of creating this buffer zone, creating paternalistically, paternalistically creating allies that are going to help them long term? Right. And for the Wood Elves, the price that the Bretoni pay is citizens killed in the Great Hunt. Uh, but for the Dwarves, the price that they want is probably going to be gold later on or something like that. Uh, well, at this point, the, dwar- the Dwarves really do not have the manpower, the dwarf power, 
to keep up the the wars against the orcs and goblins against the skaven if the if the greenskins colonize the old world the empire forest region the dwarves are going to lose they are going to be surrounded on by the dark clans on one side more orcs and goblins on the other and they will lose hold after hold again this is not known by sigma and the human characters this is definitely going to be in the minds of Kurgan Iron Beard and the Dwarves. Because what we're going to see much later on is the Dwarves ally aligning with the humans for one f- final battle that doesn't actually impact the Dwarves, but they tell the humans it does. The, the d- humans are under the impression this is the last, this is defending the Dwarven homeland. If you look at the map, it's not in any way that. So we have canonically that the dwarves are giving a very selective view of their own politics to the humans. Yeah, see, that's not that's not something I caught, but it does speak to if you are interested in dwarves, if you're interested in learning a little bit about them. Uh, this book does address them. So you've got humans in the empire, you've got dwarfs. Uh, and then the other group that you're going to see commonly in this book is orcs, but never from their perspective. You're just going to see them as the enemy in this book. The cannon fodder. Absolutely. There's also one battle with beastmen as well. Trying to think if there's any other factions that are represented in battles in the book, but I'm blanking on that. Uh, Yeah, that's true. You do see a bit of of those that are going to become, you know, the chaos warriors, chaos marauder type Norse and stuff. So, sorry, it's possibly worth pointing out that the Norse and chaos warriors and the orcs don't really change between what's depicted in this book and the the present day in the Warhammer world. The Empire does, the Bretonians do, the Dwarves add in gunpowder down the line, but more or less the Dwarves and the Norse and the Orcs and Goblins, you can read this and you could just do this with your army. You could depict these with what the model range has, whereas the Empire is very, very different. Humans do actually change in two and a half thousand years. I want to shout out, they mentioned the Femir as the mist, the mist demons, the mist ghosts, and it's really nice oh. to have them mentioned. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. I didn't, even, I didn't even think about that being the Femir. And for the Norsi, I think they don't change if you read them as the Chaos Marauders. I don't think they're depicted as like the super armored big baddies of Chaos Warriors, but certainly the Marauders. Well, in the lore, like when we read Riders of the Dead, they'll talk about the Kurgan, which is like the Norse and basically how at this time in the empire, like the Norse are basically just kind of bad guy, other humans, and they're not quite as separated as they will become in the future. When the technology difference is so vast, they're still kind of tangentially related, even if they're bad guys, it's a, it's a space and a time when they're much, you know, more similar and closer together. Yeah. Maybe Carrie can correct me on this, but I believe they were, a tribe like in the northern part of the empire and just through war were pushed across the sea to the north yeah that's in this book i mean if you look at the map at the beginning of this book they're 
just above the udoses, uh, and they're you know they're connected. And then um, we'll talk more about this, but how they how they become something more separate than just one of the tribes of men that's a little bit farther north than the rest occurs in this book. So uh, this this does take place, this is about the creation of the empire. So since the imperial calendar is based on the founding of the empire, it takes place uh, at negative 30, Sigmar's birth. A little bit is talked about his birth in this book, all the way to negative one of the imperial calendar. We get, there's not actually a ton of characters that are like, that you could consider main characters in this book. Uh, we'll talk more about them in just a little bit, but uh, Sigmar is going to be who you follow. Um, but what about if we wanted to read something that was connected to this, what would we read other than just the other two in the series? So two years before this came out, Games Workshop published a law supplement book, sort, sort of an in-universe book called The Life of Sigma, which covers pretty much all this material, but from a 2,000 years in the future third-party perspective as opposed to getting inside people's heads. Now, I would not actually recommend going out and purchasing The Life of Sigma. It is quite short. The The art within it is quite disjointed. It's all um, woodcut style and has some very strange choices in there. But what it does is give another perspective on what Graham McNeil was trying was trying to do and the constraints he was working within. Because things like the names of Sigma's companions is set in stone because they'd published it two years earlier. The order of events is set in stone. He can't really contravene anything too much. Though I will say that there are some parts and mentions within this law book that I really wish Graham McNeil had put into the novel. Within the Life of Sigma book, we get some really interesting little hints about the wider world and how it was different to the contemporary Warhammer world. So we get things like the Scriani flesh eaters mentioned as inhabiting the swamps near Reichdorf. Um, which seem to be some sort of cannibalistic ghoul tribe, but it does they can't explain what they were. They just know that they existed. Uh, we also get the Uberklein, which are, again, uh, cannibals, this time with red eyes. And these are, thing, th these are things that haunt what would become the Empire and really demonstrate that you have these no-man's lands between the tribes that have things that couldn't really be explained within Warhammer law 2,000 years on. So similar to the Famir controlling big portions of the Swampland. We know they sort of do in contemporary times, but there are now no-go areas that the humans don't touch. And that's a very different style. And I do wish that Graham McNeil had expanded on some of these ideas a bit more, rather than it becoming just... We've got Beastmen, we've got Greenskins, we've got things we're used to. Yeah, a little bit more mystical and mythical of, of the unknown, monsters be here type of thing. He had a lot of a blank canvas to play with that he didn't play with. Before we get into the, to the spoiler phase, I do want to make sure that our listeners can know what they're in for. So if you were to describe this book in one sentence, what is this book about? Surprise! Give a one-sentence summary. 
It reminds me of Dark Ages uniting England, but Warhammer, kind of. <laughs> Gotta add the kind of at the end. <laughs> it, it's someone, try, someone trying to conflate the rise of Charlemagne with Samson and Conan the Barbarian without offending anybody too much. That's a pretty fair assessment, yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of clinches it all together. It's just a, a unification story that uh, takes place relatively quickly as well. Mm-hmm. The, the speed of this is, I think, an important part of it. In spite of, as Mike noted when we were talking about it before, it being a 400-page book, uh, it does seem like the events occur in pretty rapid su- succession. Evan thought it moved very quickly. That's <laughs> why so it took me six months to read. I would say it's a series of trials in Sigmar gaining his goal. And in some of these, he's successful. And in others, he's disappointed. Uh, but it's it's about the series of trials that confront him because the end result is never in doubt. Wait, I got one sentence and you got that? <laughs> sure, I cheat. I'm the one who makes the rules. Mike, you know from playing me in Warhammer Fantasy that I'm going to cheat, so you should just get used to it now. I was going to make this great Alfred of Wessex analogy, and then I was just like limited to this one sentence, and it was horrible, but you get like... You know, you just got to forge your own destiny, Mike. I would argue that if Sigma was Alfred of Wessex in this comparison, the Empire would have been a lot more unified for a lot longer in its history. It's not a perfect analogy. Nobody said it was a perfect analogy. (laughs) All right. Well, are there any other comments in the spoiler-free section that anyone would like to tell our listeners? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Uh, This is spoiler-free. Just kind of the Dark Ages vibe I got from the whole book and the different, the Welsh thing going on, but also the German thing and also the Viking thing and just like so many historical parallels from like the Dark Ages, you know, 700 to 1000. You have all these elements that you find uh, from uh, Dark Ages European history. You certainly get a lot of various quote unquote tribal groups that uh, came after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. You mentioned some of them. You see the Picts depicted Ha ha ha. Um, you see others uh, as well. But yeah, each of the groups of the empire, the tribes of the empire, give a distinct feel that I think you're right, does fit with the Dark Ages. And it's, and it's fascinating that these tribes of men unite to fight their enemies who are raiding their lands, basically. And it's very Vikings, unified uh, forces in England and other countries coming together to fight off these invasive forces like the Norsei or the Orcs. But the counterplay to that is, as we've mentioned, they try and cover a lot of events in quite rapid succession. Some of these tribes, they have their their theme, their gimmick, and that's really all you get from them. So the, the tribe that is known for having berserkers, you read about their berserkers. You don't really get any nuance in there. If you are wanting to source material about the origins of your preferred empire faction it can be a little bit two-dimensional yeah i'd agree with that this is not a this is not a book for understanding deep cultural ideals of particular regions of the empire it's not going to get you that they even had like a region of pseudo amazonians that i don't feel like is present in modern empire lore at all well i read that as the picts okay yeah or boudica 
it is worth pointing out that that state, I think, based on the map, later becomes Averheim. So that's uh, Marius Lightdorf's great-great-great-great-grandma. Mm. Assuming that nothing else happens to that family within the two and a half thousand years. I think... I mean, that's where it gets the madness from. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, kind of makes sense. A little bit crazy. <laughs> All right, well, we'll we'll get to the craziness of uh, the book and some of the characters in it, but since we have now completed the spoiler-free section, we will be entering the Drockwald. That's our spoiler section as we discuss uh, a lot of the stuff that happens in the book Heldenhammer. All right, so starting us off, we have book one. Uh, book one in Heldenhammer is titled Forging the Man. And we start off just kind of meeting some of the characters. So I have this question. Who's your favorite character that we meet at the very beginning of the book? Trinovantes. Okay, why? Because he's the only one that seems relatively sensible and doesn't appear to be named after a garden implement. <laughs> <laughs> For a bit of context, uh, I've already said that Graham McNeil was a bit uh, written into a corner with the names already being chosen for him. So we have this weird selection of names. So one of the friends we have Pendrag, which is basically the name Pendragon from Arthurian mythology with the last syllable cut off. And we have Wolfgart who, as far as I can tell from searching the internet for things called Wolfgart or similar, appears to be Wolfgarten gardening implements with the last syllable cut off. The, the EN really wasn't uh, liked by whoever was doing these names. Never change, TW. Never change. So Trinovantes is definitely my favourite because he has at least a full name, not this sort of weird truncated name. And he doesn't do anything offensive or stupid later down the line. Good enough reasons to like Trinovantes. Uh, who else has a favourite? Yeah, I don't know um, that I had a, a favourite. Wolfgart is another one of Sigmar's best friends who we meet at the beginning. And he is kind of the sidekick who is probably the most powerfully built type of guy the type of guy who's more headstrong and brash and combative than maybe some of the other friends who are more diplomatic or Trinovantes, who I had as kind of the middle of the road with regards to those virtues or, or qualities. So Wolfgard's kind of your barbarian, big guy, brash, wants to fight, kind of loud type of guy. And he'll be with Sigmar here uh, throughout the rest of the book. I described him as big, loud, and braggadocious. We also get introduced to Alaric, who, if you know your lore, is Alaric the Mad, the legendary dwarf runesmith, who appears to be doubling up as an engineer in this. Um, whether this is trying to imply that the Engineers Guild and the runesmiths profession split later on, or whether it's just trying to fudge it a bit, let's not go into but what we get is a dwarf who's decided or been ordered to upgrade the humans bronze to iron age time tribal to dark age kingdom in technology yeah he appears to be the main link at this time between the tribes of men and what is what comes to be known as the empire and uh the dwarf kingdom yeah we'll we'll talk about it later but he is the main link but it doesn't seem to be entirely of his own volition. There seems to be, he's going there for a reason. He's maybe not got orders to go there, but there's there's some connection to the High King or to someone else, perhaps. There's a couple more characters I think we'd be remiss not to mention at the beginning. Uh, Sigmar's father, King Bjorn of the Unberogans, is an important character in the first couple of books of this novel. Yep. And he's the grandson of Redmain Dregor, 
And they seem to have a long lineage of being the rulers of the Umbarogans. King Bjorn has a, a bannerman, Alfgir, and he's also an important character who helps serve Sigmar in his quest to unify the tribes. I'd say for me, maybe not my favorite, but I see Pendrag, who's also one of Sigmar's kind of right-hand man. He's his bannerman and that kind of thing. He's just solid and loyal. He's described as more thinking than Wolfgart. He considers moral aspects and principles maybe a little bit more than the others and a little bit more phlegmatic, perhaps. There's a couple minor characters as well. Very early on, we get introduced to Cuthwin and Wenold. And I was, what stood out to me about it was just like, I was like reading it and I was like, this seems like a couple of Welsh names just kind of thrown into the middle of all this, you know, kind of German stuff. And it was just very bizarre to me to, to these random kind of uh, ancient English, ancient Welsh dudes thrown in there. They're the scouts. Yeah. A young boy who becomes a scout. Brian, did you did you uh, have one of the others that you wanted to introduce? Yeah, um, he he kind of hits his stride later on, and maybe it's because uh, I'm kind of more familiar with his deeds in the next book, Empire. But um, uh, Garon, obviously, we have to remember him as he plays a pretty important role <laughs> in the life of Sigmar, um, and then his eventual change later on in the book. He's the brother of Trinovantes, the twin brother, Correct. right? Yeah. The twin brother of Trinovantes, and also they're both the brothers of uh, Ravana. And the fact that in our list of main characters, this is the first female and the only female we're going to get says a little bit about the gender balance within this novel. This character, who's never actually named the uh, the old lady of Breckenwalsh, also plays a pretty interesting and, and heavy role in the shaping of Sigmar. Just to, to set the scene for the people, when we first are introduced to Reichdorf, it's pretty small. And as the book progresses, you know, it, it exponentially grows and gets bigger and stuff. So at this time, the tribes are pretty isolated from each other. And Reichdorf, which eventually becomes Altdorf, is still like pretty much a village at this point, um, you know, maybe the most prominent that there is. And the hall was built by the dwarves there. And it's, you know, the nicest thing they got going for it, but it's still pretty primitive. It's probably, it's probably also mentioning that at the at our starting point, Sigma is 15. We're going to get flashbacks to earlier, but Sigma is 15, and we should probably remember that as context for how the next few sections are going to play out. They had played around with the timeline a little bit. We aren't going to see, we aren't going to see chronologically him saving Kurgan Ironbeard and getting the Hammer of Sigma, which really should have happened after... Astaphorn Bridge, but they've put it before so that he already has the hammer and we don't have to have the, wow, this is amazing, it can just auto-destroy things moment. Got it. So one thing that Mike was getting at right before we get to Astaphorn Bridge, finishing off, kind of connecting us to stuff, is that what is going to be the Empire during the you know time of six to eight editions of the Warhammer world, what's going to be the Empire, is completely divided into small, warring, tribal groups, each with their own territory, sometimes with some sort of kinship or bond relationships, but not really. They're pretty ununified and combative towards one another. I believe they have shared religion for the most part, too. They seem to mostly worship Ulrich, from what I can tell. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? (laughs) 
they don't have, from the, the very flat uh, depiction of the cultures, they don't seem to have a ton of cultural stuff connecting them. And so, yeah, there's the religion and they're human. A couple of tribes that are in closer proximity will have better relationships, like Marburg and the Endals with the with the Reichdorf and the and the Umbrogans. And we also never have a language issue, which shows there's a certain cultural unity going on. Oh, that that's very true. All right, so we've got these characters. What's our introduction to who Sigmar is? So Sigma is put in charge of an army to go out and save a town that is besieged by orcs. And this is going to be our introduction to Sigma the hero, Sigma the prince, Sigma the warrior. And it's going to be his testing his mettle, demonstrating his leadership ability, which he does straight off by deciding to not wear any armor because, you know, good leadership there. He'll actually get critiqued for that kind of stuff later. You see him grow a little bit, like learning about how to be a leader without being a naked man in front of the battle lines. And yet you also see some continuity with with that throughout the book. Um, But before you talk about what happens at the battle, I think one of the things that's interesting is like uh, Geryon is kept out of the battle because he had a fight with, I think with Wolfgard. And so he doesn't actually get to go to the battle and it would be his first battle. And it seems like it's going to be really most of the main male fighting characters of Sigmar's, group it's going to be all their first battle where they're going to prove themselves as men and come to some sort of camaraderie but Geryon doesn't get to go yeah and it's noted that Geryon is probably the finest swordsman amongst that class of young men but he still gets beat up by Wolfgard because Wolfgard's bigger (laughs) what we have is quite a, a basic tactical plan which we can critique all we like of we will send our cavalry to attack the orcs we will then pull our cavalry back, and then we will charge the orcs again once we've swapped our spears out for ones that aren't broken. Except this relies on a really important kind of requirement from a certain group of people. Which is the, the volunteer 50 to 100 men who will then block the bridge you've just ridden across to give you time to get rearmed. And that contingent is essentially going to sacrifice themselves heroically. It's one of these things where it was already in the law that this happened, and Graham McNeil couldn't change it. If you think too hard about this, you'll start picking holes in it quite quickly. There are ways of doing this exact maneuver that doesn't involve sacrificing contingent. The best thing, way of thinking about it is Sigma's 15. This is the best he got. Yep, that's exactly what I was thinking. He's been left to test his mettle, but also his leadership skills. But the book doesn't directly say like, oh, this was a mistake. Oh, he shouldn't have done this. The reader has to fill this in themselves if they want to. And the book doesn't necessarily come down on it as a mistake. It comes down on it as... This is an important watershed moment for leadership skills. It's almost um, Churchill deciding to let Coventry get bombed. This is a necessary sacrifice. Don't read into it too hard or you're going to start questioning it. Just as Geryon's about to because Trinovantes just got killed heroically. And was it necessary? I mean, not to step on that that reveal there but you have three texans here so rather than coventry and churchill you may want to say the alamo (laughs) because that's the one that we're going to be used to sacrificing uh so let's just go with the alamo it's just safer uh, we'll just go was there a leadership decision to sacrifice the alamo as necessary uh yeah yeah pretty yes i would say so (laughs) 
Absolutely. I mean, we all remember, right? We do. We do remember. And we also remember the come and take it uh, uh, canon. But no, there was a leadership decision, a recognition that the Alamo had to uh, be sacrificed to some degree to allow forces to be gathered. And that leads to the Battle of San Jacinto here in Houston, the town where three of us are, or two and a half of us are. Do you want to just cut the whole Coventry bit? And do you want to... Oh, no. I, I was just saying it for interesting reasons. I think Coventry works really well. Uh, I just wanted to add that Texas has the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, that's in Texas? <laughs> so we were reading Heldenhammer, right? Good point, Evan. We were reading... Heldenhammer. As Carrie stated, uh, Trinovantes defends the bridge to allow extra time, but has to sacrifice uh, his own life. Did anyone have anything else on Astafin Bridge that they wanted to say on the battle particular? Yeah, I was going to just mention that Trinovantes had seen an omen of his death, and that that's kind of a theme that kind of runs throughout this novel, that People see signs and omens and this ancient way of viewing the world. So Trinavani had seen as an omen of his death. There was a crow, right? At the very beginning of the book, he sees a crow. Something like that. And then maybe he sees it again at the battle. And then also I was going to mention that it also speaks to the the logistics I was talking about earlier with regards to like, I think Reichdorf at that time had about 2000 people. And I think Sigmar goes out with like about 200 men. And so that kind of gives us a understanding of kind of like the population size and kind of the numbers we're dealing with at this point. And we see how that changes over, over time. Yeah, they, Graham McNeil works to make sure that we know the numbers of men at each of the battles. Like he's always like, there's 3,000 3, men at this battle or whatever. And I think you're right, Mike, that's to kind of give us an idea of what we're dealing with and what this expansion looks like. And early on, it's really low. Yeah, it's really low, like a few hundred. But but by the end of the novel, we see what that turns into. We get the returning heroes. We get Sigma getting celebrated. Sigma is, of course, in a great melancholy. Um, and just I'm just going to slight divergence to a, a comparison already made. Sigma is 15. This is the same age that Conan the Barbarian becomes a man and has his first battle. We're going to be spending most of our time in, to quote Robert E. Howard, great melancholies as opposed to great mirth. He spends a lot of time introspecting and beating himself up about everything he does. Garion, who's been left out of the battle, is all judgment. He got my twin brother killed and the, it causes, causes a scene and is clearly going to be in an antagonist role from now on because you can see in his head that he's not going to let this go. What is everybody else thinking? What happens uh, when they get back that might help us understand, foreshadow things in the future, or would be important for understanding things that happen in the future? We're really getting the impression that Sigma and Ravenna are they're going to be they, they are a couple and they are going to be a thing quite soon they're going to you know get married within the next few years i can't remember when she says it but like obviously she's torn she's super upset that her brother has died uh, she doesn't blame sigmar for trinovanti's death in the same way that garyon does and this in spite of the fact that she's really very pacifistic like she's upset that they have to go to war she's upset that all these things happen but she's not as torn up about the specifics of that her brother was sacrificed yeah she seemed very quickly to uh forgive sigmar and i don't want to say move on but 
kind of move on <laughs> a little bit. Whereas Garon just really, uh, he he kind of takes it harshly, to, to put it lightly. If I recall correctly, they're orphans. Is that right? Yeah. Does that have something to do with why, like, when Sigmar's talking, and maybe this is jumping too far forward, but Sigmar is going to talk about marrying her later, but he he says he's going to wait until he's king. Uh, I wonder if that has to do with her lineage. No, it has nothing to do with their lineage. If it had to do with their lineage, then Trinovantes wouldn't have been put in command position. This has to do with, to put it bluntly, Sigma being an idiot. You cannot put <laughs> off marriage until you are king in a Dark Age society. 15 is a perfectly acceptable marriageable age if you're a monarch in a Dark Age society. Putting, We're going to jump 10 years in the future and he's still putting off the wedding. The way, the way, the way I had to read this was that Sigma didn't actually want to get married and as we've we've joked about on the Discord was Sigma in fact in love with Wolfgar or something like that and just they didn't have the the audacity to say this outright. One other key here is that there's also a play on his marriage to the ideal or or the dream of what he's supposed to make. Right. At the very end of the book, it talks about what he's supposed to be married to, or maybe it's in the middle of the book, but he's talking to the hag at one point, And she reminds him, like, you're supposed to be married to the idea of, of an empire, of unity, of the land. And so I do think that he kind of knows that and keep. And so he may be putting off the marriage to her because he knows he's not really supposed supposed to he's supposed to do this other thing and that's supposed to be his true love that sounds like the frederick the great excuse um to me sigma is alexander in this he's going to get married because he has to not because he wants to possible we do get at the very end of this some foreshadowing that really doesn't last long that it's a surprise but Girion goes to the hag at the very end of this section of the book and uh we don't see it but he's going to make some sort of deal with her. And we don't know what it is, but we know he's angry at Sigmar. Well, at this time, we also, Bjorn is visited by the Witch of the Brackenwash after Trinovanti's funeral. The witch tells Bjorn he must make a vow to her. She won't tell him what it is yet, but he must promise to obey what she commands in the future. When they talk about his birth, was there something about the hag woman being there at his birth as well? The original hag woman had been boiled and eaten by the orcs when they got there to receive um, rudimentary midwifery help. So Sigma gets born on a battlefield, covered in orc blood, as his mother dies giving birth to him. The hag woman we therefore have for the rest of the story is her apprentice who watched all this happen. It's very Conan as well. And also after the funeral of Trinovantes, this is kind of the formative moment when Sigmar makes Wolfgard and Pedrag, Pendrag swear to him that, um, you know, we're going to have this oath together to unite the tribes of men because Sigmar's had this clear vision after the Battle of Asifan Bridge that the tribes of men must unite or they will separately, you know, be destroyed by the forces of beastmen and orcs. So this is kind of where Sigmar's vision of the future and what has to be done kind of is developed there's no like clear moment of having a vision or anything am i remembering that wrong i don't remember him like having a specific vision someone telling him he had to do this it's just more like sigmar believes that we have to do this and he's making everyone swear and then throughout the book there's just this confidence that that's what has to be done and everyone knows he's the one 
to do it. And you get little glimpses of why people believe in Sigmar. And like, he's obviously the best fighter and he's obviously strongest and he has Galmaraz. And later we'll get to the story about how he gets the hammer. But it just, it's interesting because he's like got this confidence that this is what he has to do. And then everyone believes he's going to do it. But you don't always know why people think he's so great. We can get into it later, but that would be one of my criticisms of the book. It's a, it's a, drawback of trying to fit so many different plot beats in they haven't actually got space for or breathing space for him to convince anyone with actions they're going to have to tell not show on this evan go ahead and tell us what you're thinking on that well i was just he has this clear idea of his destiny and there's moments early on in the book and i think we're about to get to a point pretty soon where this shift where early on he has doubts about this sort of vision of his for the future. Um, and then there's a very clear cut moment. And then you don't really get those doubts after that. And it's kind of something we just were talking about. And, and like I said, we will get into it. Um, but it's kind of that dichotomy of, you know, his vision for this empire and he never strays from it, and he never has like moments of doubt later on. Which, I, I just as a criticism, I think it makes the book less compelling at times, because you just feel like you're working through like these plot beats. Like you're just waiting for like the next one to come. You right, know? The, so the melancholy that Carrie talked about earlier, it's not a melancholy of, did I make the right choice? Am I sacrificing these things for nothing? It's a melancholy of, boy, it's a bummer. I had to sacrifice these things, but it's all going to work out because I know I have this destiny. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that um, is one of the, and I think Carrie's right that it it's because it's trying, this book is trying to do so much in a relatively, you know, 400 pages short story, but it's that difficulty of writing a book when everyone knows what's going to happen at the end. And then the characters and then you add to it that the characters know what's going to happen. And yeah. that's tough. I think it was a poor decision overall to get inside Sigma's head for this book. Black Library later gets better at this sort of thing with the, th- the Horace Heresy books, getting inside Primarch's heads. And how do you depict the inner thoughts of someone that is a larger than life character? But Really, I think they should have gone down the route they took with the Solar Macarius trilogy and done this mainly from a third-party perspective. And therefore, you wouldn't have to look at Sigma's thought processes. It would be, how does this look from the outside? Yeah, because you, you kind of get this tension of like the legendary figure of Sigmar and then like the reality, but there's no tension there between those things they're just one and the same you know you don't get to rely on the unreliable narrator because he's inside his own head you don't you don't have any of those things that you can rely on it's here's a larger than life character who believes he can do larger than life things and is going to go do them and you could have gone down the like Caiaphas Cain route I'm using Black Library examples for obvious reasons where this would this could be told by sort of a seventy year old Sigma who's almost at the point of walking off into the sunset and him critiquing this is what people said happened, 
uh, this is actually what really happened. We could have had right. some fun with that. I think that would have been really interesting, actually. Yeah, him kind of looking back on it through the lens of his his wisdom that he's gained. Well, historical memory is always an interesting thing, right? Like the way that we choose to remember events like the bombing of Coventry or the Alamo or the Battle of Astrakhan Bridge and uh, Sigmar's actions. But what we do know is that Sigmar does win this battle. Sigmar is uh, someone who believes himself destined for a great future. Uh, We see some foreshadowing of of events with uh, his father Bjorn meeting with the hag and having to offer, you know, obedience essentially to her uh, for Sigmar's life. And then, of course, uh, Gary ongoing as well. So we see this foreshadowing, and that leads us into this book two of Heldenhammer, part two, which is the forging of the king. And in it, we see Bjorn getting ready for battle. Yeah, I was just going to say, I wrote, I wrote down in my notes that this is a six-year uh, time jump. So now we have uh, Sigmar about age 21. And right at the end of book one, there's also a, a point where Bjorn tells Sigmar that it's better to dip out as king as opposed to become frail and destroyed by your enemies. And that kind of foreshadows Sigmar's famous end in the Warhammer world, which I thought was notable and interesting. The book two starts out with Sigmar leading his warriors against a group of beastmen. Uh, Garion is with him, and Garion at this time has become uh, Sigmar's friend over the over the course of the last five or six years, ostensibly. And the book speaks to how Garion is a very fine swordsman, and at the same time, Reichdorf is expanding very quickly. It has new dock facilities and bridges are going up over the, over the Reich River. Wolfgard is developing war horses. And so we're just seeing kind of a, a steady progression and development in Reichdorf and amongst the Umbarogan tribe. One, one thing that is going to come up now and later is some of these socio-economic changes, these changes to infrastructure, things like horse breeding as well, they aren't necessarily possible within the time frames the novel gives. Yeah, everything's kind of on an accelerated timeline. To breed decent horse uh, war horses, you need to go through several generations of horses. They're going to manage that. They've started it in six years. They're going to have more or less perfected it in 15. That isn't generally the turnaround of that. Maybe the gestation period of a Warhammer World horse is like 15 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> They're like fruit flies, and Wolfgart is like Mendel. So this, this is why the Bretonians cheat and just interbreed with elven steeds every few generations. Smart. The Bretonian war horses, not the Bretonians themselves. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get beastmen <laughs> all right so he comes back so they fought beastmen and then like there's a couple things that are happening all at once right like um before you move on from the beastmen i did want to mention just in my notes it says bray shaman must be so disappointed in their herds <laughs> 
because I feel like the uh, the Bray Shaman was extremely powerful, but was totally let down by his herd of you know gore or whatever they were just fleeing from the battle. I can tell you that there are some Bray Shaman podcast editors who are similarly disappointed in their herd regularly. Mm. You know, <laughs> if you catch my drift. No, y'all are awesome. I think it's true. They, I mean, Beastman, we talked about this and not having a book. It's sad. Like they don't even get to be like the super big baddies. They're like the rats in the cellar of your RPG game. They're just like the first baddie you meet and they're disposed of fairly easily. It's true in the Orion series. Like they do the same thing to them. Like the Beastmen aren't much. They're not a writing culture, Brian. They can't have books. But they can, (laughs) they can still like destroy stuff. They should still be. They're super like cave big paintings. They're like cave paintings at best. Mike, do you think the orcs have books? No. Are we reading their stories? There's Scarsnick. Well, I mean, we're only reading this. They're in our. They're in the men's stories. But are we reading like the stories from the orcs' perspective? Or? I assume Scarsnick is from a goblin's perspective. I haven't read it. Oh, I'll have to get it's back on to the, you. On it's that. on the list. It's on the list. But okay, before we get too far off topic, so. There's a couple things happening all at once, and I could be wrong on the timing, but I think Bjorn goes to the north to fight the Norsi. He goes to the north to uh, fight the Norsi because the the Norsi are pushing into the Udozes, I believe. That that becomes one of the first major conflicts that, that we're introduced to in this, this next section of the Norsi pushing south. Yeah, and at that same time, we also have the plot, the plot point where Garyon, um, he's visited by the the witch and the Bracken Walsh, and then at some point while he's back in Reichdorf, he sees his sign that um, now's about the time to uh, take his revenge for his brother's death, and so he sees the red hand at a uh, training session when uh, someone's wounded by accident. And that's his sign that he needs to take revenge. And so King Bjorn's up in the north fighting the North Sea at the same time that Garion's getting ready to uh, take his revenge on Sigmar. And kind of these fates are kind of uh, coming together here at this moment. Yeah, I think McNeil had a really difficult thing here because he has to take Garion from hating Sigmar, really angry about Trinovantes, and then portray Garion as now he's a friend of sigmar and no he's definitely definitely over things and all is well and then he sees the sign that he was supposed to see he's supposed to be a little bit torn about it maybe he's torn we don't know maybe he doesn't really want to do it but what's going on like it's a really hard thing to do in such a short number of pages for the book that's a really tough spot for graham mcneil to be in this is sort of time writing around a time jump difficulty that you see a lot where you need to pick up this narrative thread very quickly and show internal conflict when you really don't have the breathing space to do it yeah it's just it's tough i mean i did notice one thing in there when he's meeting with the hag when he's talking to her i do get this question of like who's leading Girion and who's leading the hag because we know the future for sigmar and in this book we don't know the future 
for Girion yet. Even at this point, I wrote down in my notes, who does the hag serve? Right? Like, Because sometimes she seems to be serving men, like when she's dealing with Bjorn and Sigmar. Well, not Sigmar yet, but when she's dealing with Bjorn. But is Zinch back there pulling some strings? Like, I wonder how much Zinch is, is there. I don't know if anyone else got that feeling. I always got the vibe of she was always on the side of men and that her pushing Caron Garion to, you know, the links that he goes to was all part of the character building or the trials that Sigmar had to go through to end up becoming Sigmar God King. Right. I always felt that she was definitely on the side of men, but I wasn't sure if there was someone behind her tricking even her. Like where do these powers come from? Could it be Zinch? Well, this sort of takes us conveniently into the, the next scene where Garion is going to surprise his Sigma and his sister in their sort of secret little glade, all um, oh Braveheart style. You go off into the woods to have your have your romance, um, and his plan for revenge is to stab Sigma and then murder his sister because that makes total sense. Wait, just to clarify, he wasn't intending to kill his sister, was he? I didn't get that vibe. I didn't think so. I thought he just kind of did it on a whim. I got the impression that he hadn't taken it off the table when he popped out. I thought it just ended up being a mistake. Either, either way, he, he, he kills her. That's the, impo- that's the important thing. He jumps out, and Sigmar's obviously not ready for battle, and doesn't have his weapon, and knows that Geryon is this super-skilled swordsman, and he doesn't have much of a shot. And ultimately, he, he gets beat, and... He only survives by falling into the water, the nearby river, and Geryon has killed his own sister, um, Ravina, and right in front of Sigmar, as Sigmar kind of dying floats away in the river. And what we what we have here is the death of the, the only female main character in such a way that her death really only exists to inspire change in the male protagonist. Um, people who are familiar with uh, comic book analysis would know this as women in fridges, where you kill off the female love interest, really not treating them as a person, just treating them as a narrative device to add character growth and angst to the male. This is not necessarily something you want to see in your fiction and isn't something you really want to be relying on as a plot device. Yeah, which that was kind of what I was hinting at earlier with my criticism is that pretty much from this moment on, he doesn't doubt. It it kind of frees him to pursue that destiny. Like he doesn't have that tension anymore between like, oh, do I want to be married and be the, the king in, you know, this way versus like, oh, I'm going to go be the warrior king now. Right, because she served for him also as a a kind of conscience about war. Uh, This struck me as odd. I find it odd that in the Warhammer world that there would be anyone being like, maybe we shouldn't fight. Okay, in our world, I get it because you're fighting other humans. But in the Warhammer world, these are orcs, and orcs just wants to fight and kill everything, and beastmen the same, and dark elves fairly similar you have to fight and i don't know like her just saying you know i I really wish that the the men wouldn't have to go fight which i get wishing that they wouldn't have to go fight but also is that even a comprehensible thought in a world where 
if you don't, you die. Yeah, I had that same thought while I was reading. <laughs> Do you have academics sitting around discussing what is a just war when the chaos spawn are on the other side of the gate? Exactly. Exactly. Right. I, I just don't think that the Warhammer world has a place for pacifism. It's in the name. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah, and at about the same time, we have King Bjorn up uh, up in the Trucin lands fighting a Norse invasion. He's got about 7,000 warriors with him, mostly Inverogans, but also Trucins. The eve before the battle, he's visited by the witch of the Brackenwald, and she kind of reminds him of after Trinovanti's funeral that she that she required that he promise her that she would he would obey her when the when the moment kind of came and she visits him and tells him he has to go out and fight the fearsome warlord of the Norside tribe um, at the battle tomorrow this is kind of a culmination of the sacrifice that is necessary for the, the, the passing of Bjorn onto Sigmar and death and fate and uh, all of these things kind of intertwining here. He knows he has to sacrifice and do whatever it is that she says in order to save Sigmar. And he doesn't know what's happened back at home, but he knows that that was the deal. He obeys her. Sigmar will be saved. And this narrative element will definitely not be undermined by reusing it again before the end of the book. No more father figures are going to have this exact conversation. So he fights this warlord and is struck down, but doesn't die. He's injured grievously. And well, I, I didn't mention this in the, in the combat uh, with Sigmar and Geryon. The reason that his injury is so harmful is that uh, Geryon had put, put poison on his blade. And so uh, when Sigmar is found, you know, on the bank of the river, he's got this deadly poison in him that's definitely going to kill him. And at the same time, you know, however many miles away, his father Bjorn is, is also kind of on a, on a deathbed or on a, maybe not a deathbed, but is injured, not necessarily in a way that's going to absolutely lead to his death. Yeah, so simultaneously, Sigmar is found by a fisherman who's named as Horst Edsel. Shout out to Horst. Um, and he's taken back to the apothecary in uh, Reichdorf. And at this exact kind of simultaneous moment, you know, a 12-hour period, Bjorn is up in the north um, and he's been struck down. And that's when it leads us to Bjorn and Sigmar uh, finding each other in this area known as the Grey Vaults. So Sigmar and Bjorn meet each other in the Grey Vaults when they're both kind of on death's door. Sigmar and Bjorn are reconciled there. They don't really understand why they're there and they start making their way towards uh, distant mountains and uh, Bjorn and Sigmar uh, fight a battle in these gray vaults, this kind of twilight zone where they fight a host of demons and ghosts and uh, the Imbrogan ghost men kind of help them fight these demons. They're kind of in this in-between space between life and death. And Bjorn wants to send Sigmar back to the land of the living, of course. And Bjorn then has to sacrifice himself and, and goes to, to Moore's kingdom. And this kind of opens up the path 
for Sigmar to take over the tribe of the Umbarogan when he's about 21 years old or so right. and fulfill his destiny of, of uniting the tribes. Sigmar is supposed to be the one who dies. And Bjorn's not necessarily supposed to die, right? But he sacrifices himself. Do you think this was a quick way to give uh, Sigmar closure over over Bjorn while at the same time passing the mantle uh, of leader of the Umbarogans? Well, I mean, as, as Carrie said earlier, there's also the, the foreshadowing of like, you, you want to pass it on and not like die in old age. And so I do think part of it is is that. And then part of it is, it's a nice way of setting it forward that that's how the mantle gets passed. He's already had one super sad thing when Ravina dies. We don't need a second one of his father dying to drive him to build the empire. His father sacrificing and believing in him, just as Ravina had, I think is, is enough. After uh, Sigmar starts to recover, right? So like his father's sacrifice works. He comes back. He's alive. He fights and survives, and we move into book three, which is called Forging the Legend. Uh, And in Forging the Legend, Sigmar, who's now king, has the opportunity to say to his swords brother, his sworn swords, um, you know, we're going to to now accomplish my vision. And McNeil wastes no time in having him start to do that. Does anyone want to... There's a number of things that Sigmar does now, right? Like his goal is to unite men. That's what he wants to do. It's what he said he wants to do. And he says, we've got to unite men because, you know, the enemies are too many and too powerful. And we're all going to die if we don't unite, specifically orcs. But I guess beastmen might be in there to some degree, too. We have to unite and he's going to be the one to unite them. But the tribes, their kings are just like, they're fractious. They fight each other. They don't want to unite. They want their independence, all those tropes. And he has to bring them together. Much of book three is him on this, doing these number of heroic feats to bring about unity. So rather than like go through each of these, who has a favorite uh, that they want to want to talk about? We could kind of try to go in order. Who's got one they want to talk about? One quick thing I think we should mention, though, is I believe at the beginning of the third book, he's kind of like coronated as the king of the Umbrogan, is he not? Yeah, all of them get together. I think all the kings, or most of the kings. Or at least the ones that are allied to him. Well, they get together for Bjorn's funeral. Right. Right. And then at the end of his funeral, he is... I believe he's like kind of coronated. Right. There. And then one fun scene is when King Kurgan, the Dwarven King kind of reiterates the story of how he obtains Galmaraz, which Carrie had talked about earlier that it's kind of out of place in the story. Right. And just I don't know before if, you tell the story yeah. of how he gets it, it comes about because he's trying to like convince the Kings to unite and they're not interested in doing so. And so he says, Oh, I can't remember exactly what he says about Galmaraz, but like something about like him getting Gal- Galmaraz or him choosing it or something like that. And the Dwarf King very swiftly like corrects him and says, no, 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 you didn't choose Galmaraz. It chose you. So I, you could almost consider that retelling of that story like the first 
of the trials that kind of convince the other kings to unite behind him. He gets Galmaraz because he fights a battle in which the dwarven king is tied up and captured. Carrie, did they describe it much in the brief thing that you said was published before this book? There's a few versions of this. It is in the Life of Sigma. It's put narratively at a different point in Sigma's life. It's after Astaphorn, Astaphorn Bridge. Um, really, there are, the plot beats aren't that different. The, there's some very straightforward things that appear in every version of this story. Is this idea of the, the hammer choosing him? Because it's the Dwarf King Kurgan. It's his hammer. And Sigmar's fighting the orc, Cleedrin, Vagraz, Head Stomper. Because you gotta, if you have an orc name, you've got to read an orc name. Vagraz, Head Stomper. And they're fighting, and, and the dwarves are tied up with good dwarven rope. And that's how you know they can't get loose. And they are in danger. And Sigmar goes to save them in spite of the fact that like the orcs are probably going to kill the humans too. And that's why Kurgan's surprised and they start fighting and, and Kurgan gets loose and the others get loose and they're fighting or whatnot. But Sigmar's fighting Vagraz and Kurgan gets this idea. He has to throw Galmaraz to Sigmar and he knows he has to throw it to him and he throws it to him. And Vagraz suddenly gets like, surprised he's like oh crud i was beating this human and now this human has this hammer and things aren't so great and then he smacks vagraz around and even though he doesn't stomp on vagraz's head uh, he does crush it with the hammer. i was very quickly trying to reread the life of sigma section to make sure i get this right no it's a very straightforward he saves the dwarf king dwarf king gifted sigma with his great hammer and this is the hammer isn't mentioned until the saving's finished right in this book in helden hammer it's very specifically that kurgan points out at this moment like the hammer chose him and this is one of those moments where everyone needs to believe in sigmar because he's something special the dwarves say so the next section we have is sigma returns to the north to essentially replay the war that his father died in and this time beats the Norsi so hard that they are in full flight uh, via boat. If we sort of think all, all the long ships are taking off half empty of men, except this time it's catapults on the cliffs, let's wipe them out as they flee. And there is some debate among Sigma's companions as to whether this is beyond the pale. Is this, a, is this are we into war, war crime territory now? Is this a bit genocide-y? And Sigma is, no, this has to be done. This is necessary. Puts his, puts his foot down. No, we are, we are doing this. This is for the good of, good of the empire that will be. Yeah, this is, this is one of those moments when Pendrag, his contemplative side comes out and he's thinking about, oh my goodness, are we really doing this? And at the end, after Sigmar tells him, like, no, this is why we're doing it, because they're going to come back. If we don't do this, they're going to come back and, and attack us again and again and again. So we have to do this. Pendrag kind of comes to a point where he's like, I know he's right, but I don't want to be here for it. And I'm going to leave. And I don't want to be involved. I, I This might be a bit too political, but in reading this... Uh, as a British as a British person, this felt very much like the debates about the sinking of the Belgrano in the Falklands War. It's technically leaving the combat zone. Is it a fair target? 
given it could turn around again. And Sigma versus Pendrag, it felt like the debate about that. It was a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with that debate at all, hence why cut it if it's too obscure. No, I'm, I'm familiar. I'm all with about that. obscure references to military conflicts between UK and Argentina. <laughs> uh, one thing I thought was interesting about this is, in spite of this book having a lot of battles between you know Sigmar's forces and others, this is one we don't see. So I just thought it was interesting that like here's a battle with the Norse, and it may just be because we just saw one with Bjorn in the Norse. And how do you describe that same battle, but this time with Sigmar? But it was interesting. Yeah, as Carrie said, it, it kind of had the genocide vibes. But as we know, as we uh, move on in Empire history, it, it, with most of the Black Library books and in the lore, the main chaos enemy of the Empire a lot of the time is the Norse. It's Marauders, it's Kurgan, it's guys. These are a, a large part of the main enemy of the Empire later on in history. And so they're clearly not successful in any type of genocide attempt. And interestingly, I think from a differentiating the tabletop from the lore, you know, you don't see marauders a ton necessarily on the tabletop, but in the lore, marauders are they're they're prominent. They're there. Mike, if I could just clarify, I think we covered we touched on this a little bit earlier. Kurgan and Norse aren't interchangeable. Kurgan are actually a separate peoples from across the world edge mountains this is going to be very relevant in rise of the dead writers tend to like using kurgan later on in storm of chaos material because they're not done they've not been done to death they want more of a step culture than a norse culture hmm, interesting oh interesting my apologies are kurgan more horse related uh, kurgan are basically pro- a combination of proto-turkish um little bits of hun but re- really step pastoral horse nomads. Um, in, the, in the present, the leader of the, the main leader of the Kurgan is Krom the Conqueror, which brings us back to Conan, where we're using names straight out of Robbie Howard. Hey, if you can't do better than another writer, just steal their ideas and, and put them in the Warhammer world. It'll work. If you look at the, the maps that show sort of the chaos wastes and the tribes around them, there's three broad categories. You've got the Norse, you've got the Kurgan, and you've got the Hung, which are above China. Uh, Cathay, sorry. So, yeah, we have this ethnic cleansing. Even if not a genocide, this is certainly an ethnic cleansing. So if you're looking at the map, and the map comes uh, in the book, the Norse flee from, from where they are, and the Udoses are rescued and brought into Sigmar's fold as allies of this burgeoning organization of men that includes, and and this is something we haven't talked about. It's not just the Unbrogan who are doing this fighting. Bjorn himself had actually created a couple of alliances. I think up in the north, it's the Cherusins who he's fighting with when he's fighting the Norse. And then there's Marabad of the Endals, I believe. Okay. Yeah, Marabad. This is one uh, right beside him that he's allied with where are the Cherusins? i don't even know where they are the Cherusins are in like modern day hawkland they're kind of right that doesn't help me the... i don't know my lore okay. oh geez well okay they're right in the middle okay yeah sorry all right so i get to play the the ignorant lore reader who is listening to this podcast you can 
understand where I'm coming from saying, I don't know where this is, but this is right in the middle of what's going to become the empire. Okay. Bjorn had already created those allies, so they're helping fight. And then Sigmar brings in this other group, the uh, Udoses, by rescuing them from the Norse. Anyone else have a favorite? I think the next one is um, he goes to kind of parlay with the the Tudigens, and he marches his forces up to their, what's called the Falschlag Rock, which is like this giant impenetrable spire fortress. And they go to the gate and like, I think they just pull their elevator up. Can anyone tell us? So you're going to tell us about what they do there. Why do they automatically march from this battle with the Norsite to the Fauschlag? Why are they targeting these guys? If you recall from the second book, I believe that Sigmar has a bone to pick with these guys because they took advantage while Bjorn was gone with the army to raid Uh, Umbarogan lands and Sigmar got very upset and he decided at that time that hey every village needs to have a stockade we need to develop the militia system we really need to organize and become better trained and all this and it was because the uh, Tudengens were taking advantage of the uh, power vacuum that had been created when Bjorn had gone up to the north with the Umbarogan army and then uh, Sigmar was like I hate these guys. I'm going to go to the rock and specifically King Arthur. Yes. King Arthur of the Tudigens. Where could they have gotten that name? <laughs> yeah. Right. I do think it's, it is one of the things that I think that Graham McNeil did well in this book is express, uh, you know, even if it's in a condensed time period, express why or how the Imperial idea became more developed, right? Like, why did they decide to have all the citizens able to fight? Why did they start having better weaponry? Why did they start uh, developing this stronger horse culture? And it's because you know they were connected with this other group that had horses, or the dwarves gave them this weaponry, or in this case, it was King Archer and his forces had attacked, and they realized they needed to have all their, their people trained for even when all the soldiers are gone. So I think Graham McNeil did a right. good job on that kind of showing here's the steps of how the empire developed into a a culture that could be prepared for war right on on a counterpoint he does describe king arthur as having found the falstag now bear in mind this is something you know like rock of gibraltar size in the middle of the forest if it took them that long to find it the teutons aren't the brightest of people I think it's just a poor word choice there. So anyway, he goes to kind of parlay with this king and he refuses, kind of goes back up into his ivory tower, if you want to call it that. And so Sigmar says, okay, well, I'm just going to climb up there and <laughs> talk to him face to face if they're not going to let me up. I mean, that's what I so, would do, right? he, Like someone's in a big rock, right, I'd be yeah. like, oh, well, I'll just go climb up and see them. Yeah. And he he brings along his champion, which I don't think we've mentioned before, but it, I believe it was Bjorn's champion before his. Al- Alfgear, is that his name? I can't remember. Yeah. So he kind of goes up with him. Not sure why, but maybe just to be a witness. I don't know. <laughs> so they climb up to the top, and then he confronts and has a, a duel with this King Artur. 
and beats him. And during their duel, he's also briefly like cast into the flames of Ulrich, which is like this never ending flame that's at the top of the spire and comes out of it unscathed, which to like everyone that witnesses this happen is like, oh, it's a sign from the god, from Ulrich, that he's meant to be our king or whatever. I'd just like to point out that any Dark Elf players should recognize that this makes Empire players superior. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to start doing that, um, what eventually happens, that Flame of Ulrich, really implies that Elves are superior to humans. So (laughs) Teclis just grabs that flame with Ulrich complaining about it and trying to use spectral wolves to stop him. And, and, and legs it with it um, in end times, and uh, that's the fall of Medenheim right there. <laughs> oh, I never read that. So he just palms the flame and, and bounces? He palms the flame, uses it to resurrect Tyrion as the incarnate of light, and then the penny drops that, hang on, the doomsday device was under Medenheim, I just destroyed the world, didn't I? I'm an idiot. Well, so, what you're saying is the the elves may be superior in that they have the power to do that to the flame of Ulrich, but they weren't smart enough not to. Not the wisdom. Exactly. Right. No no impulse control. Unlike most Warhammer players who have really good impulse control <laughs> and don't own every army. <laughs> Anyways, can we talk about this false flag yeah, rock thing yeah. for a second? Because I thought it was just like the most preposterous one of the most preposterous parts of the book. <laughs> I mean, the way that a book describes the false flag rock is like you cannot see the top of it. And even when you're like halfway up it, you cannot see the top of it. And the notion that Sigmar is like 21 and yeah, I get the idea that he's like a superhero type of guy. Like he's climbing up this thing, like all Alex Honnold style, free solo, no equipment, no gear. And he's just going to climb to the top of it. First of all, how long does that take? Second of all, Alf gear is doing it too. And he's got to be like 50, 60 year old man. Who's definitely not, a demigod and like how is he doing this too absolutely ridiculous i love that this is the part of the book that just beggars belief for you <laughs> beggars belief there's no way Beast, it makes no Beastman, sense orcs you know all this stuff that's fine climbing rocks i've never seen the like of that yeah impossible what do you mean you can't see the top <laughs> so he beats this king in one-on-one combat and he gains the oath or the vow from that guy's like champion that they will now follow him. Right. It's important to note that the people who live in the and they recognize that their king has been acting in ways that are unsavory or immoral or dishonorable. I think probably is a right. better word, dishonorable. And they don't like it, but he's their king. And so when Sigmar defeats right. him, I can't remember the name of the guy. It's Mirsa. Mirsa, that's right. Yep, yep. Yeah, Mirsa the Eternal Warrior. That's right. He has a he has a knife to the throat of Sigmar and can kill him because Sigmar's so tired from this fight and the flames and climbing large <laughs> climbing rocks rock. <laughs> that he has his knife to him and he's going to kill him. And Sigmar basically says, hey, you said that you, I'm the type of guy you would want to follow. And Mirsa says, yeah, but are you going to enslave us? And Sigmar says, I'm not here to make a slave of any man. And so Mirsa pledges 
to him. But I am here to kill your king. <laughs> well, I mean, that's reasonable. I feel like Mirsa probably swore an oath to protect Arthur at one point, but what, I don't know. You know, Archer's dead. You can't protect someone after that. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of conversation between them where he, he was like, yes, you're the type of man I would follow, but... I serve my king. So <laughs> Sigmar removes the king portion of that equation. Yeah, and that's down at the bottom <laughs> of the Falschlag. He's the one that like tells Sigmar that Arthur is not going to come down and meet with him. And that's what right. Sigmar notes like that Mirs is kind of disappointed about that. And he's like, hey, that seems kind of cowardly. And Mirs is like, yeah, maybe <laughs> it is. And Zygmar says, you know, you should follow someone who's not cowardly like me or so, I mean, something to that effect. And and then Mears right. is like, yeah, no, but I'm, I've sworn an oath and I'm going back. And he, he leaves. But then later he's the leader who's going to bring the Tutagen to, to serve Sigmar. Yeah, there's very uh, unsubtle undertones that Mears is very sympathetic to Sigmar from the very beginning. Yeah, you feel like everything he says, he just has like a big sigh after it. <laughs> So Sigmar goes back home. He goes to the Azaborn lands, and that's where these half Amazon, half uh, Britons live. And he gains their loyalty through a uh, consummation of a relationship with their queen, Freya. But who else has a favorite? Uh, what's something else that he does in this journey to get allies? He, well, actually, to go back to the Azaborns, there's the, the consummation, but it's also he gives them a huge tribute of weaponry and armor and horses and horses and Wolfgart calls him out you know we're more powerful than why are we doing this and Sigma sort of has to try and explain without using any complicated terminology because it's Wolfgart that if we <laughs> very small words if we demonstrate that we can give this stuff away they will assume we have an infinite amount of it and be terrified of us and think we are more powerful than we are it's political mind game stuff the Azerborns are eventually what becomes Stirland and Stirland is like known for being impoverished and like basically being rubes it kind of jives with kind of their ancient oh that makes sense <laughs> thing they got going on here where they live in holes under the ground. I thought it was interesting that in the middle of all this, we also get a side plot where we're back to Garon, right? And in the middle of all these deeds with, with Sigmar going on, we're building up his greatest rival, you know, the person who's dealt the most severe blow to him throughout his life. And we find Garon, who's escaped to the north, and he finds himself in the company of Cormac Bloodaxe, who is, if you're familiar with his figure in the lore at all, he's Cormac is the Chaos Lord who drives the deepest into the Empire beyond Archaon. I think everybody else more or less gets stopped at Prague. I guess Tumurkan kind of does this little detour through the Darklands and through the Border Princes and then comes up towards Nolm. But Cormac and Archaon are the only ones that are able to push as, as deep as they do. So Garon meeting up with this figure is kind of a big deal and it's it's there that he acquires his name that most people would probably be familiar with him as azazel and it kind of sets him up as being yeah being the big bad of the next book empire Girion is not done causing problems for sigmar but now he'll do it under a different name and i'd like to just point this out that any chaos warrior character who's not 
Archaon is more fascinating than Archaon. <laughs> so it's a good reason to like these guys. Anyway, so they tell us that story. And then Sigmar goes and he has to fight the Thuringians. So he goes to fight against Otwin, the king of the Thuringians. And the Thuringians, by this time, uh, Sigmar and his forces, all these allies, the Azabarn and the Tutagen and the Udosi, all of them far outnumber the Thuringians. And so Sigmar is really upset that the Thuringians are making him fight. He thinks that they should just join him. And I don't know exactly who. I don't remember if it's Pendrag or... Are you talking about when he's talking to Alfgare? Alfgare. Alfgare. Yeah. He's talking to him and he's like, why are they fighting? And Alfgear says, honor. And Sigmar's like, what do you mean? And Alfgear says, if Otwin surrenders now and lets you dominate, he's going to lose his kingdom. They're going to say he's dishonorable and he shouldn't have done that. So he has to fight and prove that he's an honorable king, even though he knows he's going to lose. And then when you defeat him, then he can let you rule because you've defeated him. And Sigmar is just upset because that means, you know, hundreds of men are going to die. And in Sigmar's vision, that's the worst thing possible because these men are going to be needed for the battle. And it plays out just like he says. And Otwin is defeated by Sigmar in combat and Otwin surrenders and Sigmar says, surrender to me and you'll survive. Otherwise I'll drive your women and children from their homes And so Otwin surrenders. So that's the way that he gets the Thuringians under his banner. I think someone mentions to him that if the role were reversed and if Sigmar was being subjugated by a different tribe of men, like, would he accept that as well? I mean, this notion that these various tribes are just going to like roll over and be Sigmar's uh, you know, subjects is just pretty nonsensical. I mean, most, these tribes are autonomous. They have rulers. They're not just going to give up their sovereignty because uh, Sigmar asked them to. Right. But the hammer chose him. It's true. <laughs> they, they don't... Did they hear about the hammer? They don't have a hammer. Not yet. <laughs> Uh, what's the next thing that happens? The Witch of the Bracken Walsh kind of comes to back to Sigmar in a vision and says, "Hey, you need to wrap this up because you know there's a mighty <laughs> there's a mighty orc host coming, and you're going to need all of these tribes uh, unified to do it." At this point, Evan was also saying, "Graham McNeil, you need to wrap <laughs> yeah. this up. Yeah. yeah, get on with it." Once the Witch of the Bracken Walsh visits Sigmar after he's come back to Reichdorf after uh, subjugating the Thuring- Thuringians, which becomes Middenland, we've seen Sigmar acquire provinces or tribes through various means so far. We've seen him do it through solo combat, like with Arthur. We've seen him do it through whatever he did with the Ozaborns regarding romance. Uh, we've seen him do it against Otwin with his tribe fighting his tribe. So we've seen various ways that Sigmar is uniting these tribes. And the next tribe that he has to go and try to figure out is the Burgundians, who are led by King Sigurd. And this is in the land what's going to become uh, Averland in contemporary empire. These guys are a pretty wealthy tribe. Sigmar decides to go there by himself and try to figure out a way to win them over to his banner. They also have a couple other tribes that follow them. It's not just Sigurd and the Burgundians. Yeah, it's like a little triumvirate. Yeah, there's the Marigans and the, the Menegoths. It's the Menegoths. It's and the Menegoths and the Marigans. Yeah, who are, I guess, minor tribes that are kind of influenced by the Burgundians. So Sigmar heads out southeast towards uh, Burgundia. 
and goes to Sigurdheim, which is the capital of uh, King Sigurd. King Sigurd meets with Sigmar and thinks he's really clever, and he's going to get Sigmar to accept a challenge that will most likely get Sigmar killed, and that way King Sigurd can rid himself of Sigmar without losing himself or any of his men in, in a costly war or anything. They have a really interesting dialogue, too, about should men work together and how much can they trust each other? Sigurd suggests that you can't count on allies, or at least he can't count on Sigmar to actually help because Sigmar doesn't have any self-interest in helping him. And Sigmar talks about when a neighbor has a fire, you put it out. And Sigurd says, well, yeah, but that's because if they have a fire, it's going to spread to your house. And then Sigmar says, yes, but after the fire, the neighbors still help rebuild the house of the person whose house was burned. I just thought it was an interesting dialogue. Do people help each other for reasons that are selfish or do people help each other out of true altruism? And so it just shows you the different ways that Sigmar sees the world compared to others. But he sees it as true altruism. We should help each other even if there's no benefit for us. Well, Sigmar has a very fascinating view of the world. I mean, in Sigmar's mind, he's self-appointed himself. He should be ruler of all of these men, and everyone else should be cool with it. And uh, it comes as some sort of shock when they aren't. But uh, from Sigurd's point of view, Sigurd's a treacherous guy. He's a cunning and sly type of dude. He's going to get Sigmar killed if he can. And so what he does is he requests that Sigmar go up into the mountains and defeat a beast that's been terrorizing the Burgundians. It's a dragon ogre known as Skaranarok, and it's plagued the people of this region for a while. And if you can do that, you know, kind of the notion is that, you know, Sigurd will bend the knee and accept uh, Sigmar as his liege lord. So uh, Sigmar goes up into the mountains, and uh, he has this epic battle up in the mountains between himself and this dragon ogre, which is a pretty long and detailed scene about how he, he eventually kills it. Super disappointed it's not a Shaga. <laughs> Sigmar has fought all these battles and fought all these orcs, and then it's like, a dragon ogre. You can field these in units of three, and there are 65 points. But Sigmar can barely beat this one. I don't know. I just wanted it to be a Shaga. Well, this one's like one of the ancient, most venerable ones or something, so... Yeah. Point about point about that is, is Sigma going to know that terminology? He might know what a dragon ogre is, and he might say, this is a big dragon ogre. He isn't going to sort of start saying, are you, are you 65 points, or are you 260? <laughs> Can I just clarify, you're pretty big. Are you strength six base? I can't tell from here. <laughs> so it might be a Shagoth, and it might simply be that if we are from Sigma's perspective, he can't make that call. And doesn't necessarily know there's that call to make. Yeah, in my mind, I I assumed it was a Shagoth, but it was interesting to me that this was Skoranorok's layers in the Grey Mountains, which I didn't know dragon ogres were that far south. It's it's one of the only points in in the book that kind of um, references what some of you had mentioned in the beginning, where it would have been cool if if there was more here be monsters type of thing as opposed to just. Here's greenskins, and here's greenskins again, and here's beastmen. What what I will point out in contrast to what point I've just made, later on in Blackfire Pass, Sigma is going to struggle to take on a troll, and it is plausible that he spent this many pages fighting one dragon ogre. Yeah, I've played 
uh, with and against trolls many times on the tabletop, and they're not that good. I'll be real. Certainly not when you've got Gal Moraz and are doing D- auto wounding D three wounds per hit. But are they flaming? <laughs> they're not. There you go. He rolled all four up four pluses again. It doesn't matter what. <laughs> it doesn't matter how powerful this character is. If it was uh, if Sigmar was written in Warhammer, he'd be like T four with three wounds and a four up ward save or something. He died or like some sort of uh, ballistic skill shooting like in turn two. You've just you've just described Valton, which is Sigmar. <laughs> if he's got that rule that lets him never die. <laughs> so uh, so Sigurd uh, you know confesses to Sigmar after Sigmar's brought the head of Skaranarok back down the mountain and says, "Oh, I was so." duplicitous and work and trying to you know cunningly get you to die but now i feel really bad and you know now i'm gonna join your empire <laughs> and uh yeah then uh sigmar goes back to reichdorf he he goes back when he gets there everyone's happy to see him and he says hey you know i know i fooled you when i left to go there because you didn't want me to go by myself but i tricked you and left ha 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 and then when he gets there though there's a messenger from the not Ostrogoths, from the Ostrogoths, Galen Veneva, uh, who is there and says, hey, orcs are attacking us, are attacking the Ostrogoths, and King Adelhard is requesting help. Sigmar is like, okay, go back, tell him we'll help. And so Alaric says to Sigmar, actually, uh, we've kind of got part of this handled. They're not going to be attacked until you get there. The Slayer King of Zufbar is going to be stopping the orcs from coming through uh, and attacking them. But then they do ultimately go up there to Ostagoth and they defeat the orcs at this bridge. I think it's important that it's a bridge again, Um, but they defeat the orcs there. And so now basically almost all of the tribes of man, all but two, joined Sigmar. And so they have something called the Council of the Eleven. It was incredibly forgettable. <laughs> so the, I yeah, I honestly forgot about it. They don't want to follow Sigmar. The basic gist is Sigmar says, for us to win, not only do we have to be united as you know, eleven kings working together, we have to have singular unity in our leadership. So you have to give control of your soldiers to me and all of them at first say no and then sigmar basically says well then fine i'm not i'm not going to come out of Bergen lands and i'm going to let you all die and then we'll die but and then marbad who's bjorn's closest ally says no i will give you command and then adelhard does and then wolfila who's um, the, the the queen uh, she says she will and the last one is actually Murda of the uh, Tudigens. And so they say, we'll unite under Sigmar. And so essentially they're recognizing Sigmar's authority. And that leads us to Blackfire Pass. One side note before we get to that, I just had this in my notes, that when Sigmar is on his way back from the Burgundians after he kills the Dragon Ogre, says he's ridden for Reichdorf through a pastoral landscape of golden cornfields. And I was like, oh, they have corn apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that suggests that they've that they've made contact with Lustria or with exactly the not totally not Americas and the totally not Colombian exchange has occurred. So they have corn and potatoes. 
Right, exactly. This is actually worth pointing out before we go further down this road. Corn in old world, actual old world parlance refers to grain in this context as opposed to maize. Oh, mm. yeah, I always forget about that. Bummer. I, I ran into this um, when trying to study trade in the 1800s a while back. It gets really confusing unless you realize that the two things are the same word but different crops. Well, that's just stupid. Sorry. <laughs> I, ru- I, I ruined that. He's not riding through Iowa. <laughs> At this time, Sigmar is uh, 26. So the book begins when he's 15. The transformation and the development of these tribes just in the span of 11 years is super incredible. Like population booms like, 10 times over and dock facilities and just like all the types of things that you see are just pretty, pretty remarkable with regards to the development of these tribes and their manufacturing capacities. And there's reference to the household having to save up so the man that they are sending to war can have armour. So Pendrag and Alaric have got to the point where they are producing armour on an industrial scale and it is now affordable to local peasant (laughs) farmer family number B. So they've essentially destroyed the the economic value of armour within that 10 years as well. Yeah, that was something we didn't really touch on, but it's kind of important in the beginning of the book is that Alaric takes Pendrag under his wing and shows him the metal working, not all the secrets of the dwarves, but gives him enough skill to equip the humans and teach other humans how to become blacksmiths and make steel weapons and steel armor and barding for horses. So the dwarves have given Pendrag this ability. He's also to, uh, pass it on. So like every town and village now has the ability to make armor and better weapons. And so the uh, the military capacity of the tribes is uh, exponentially grown over the course of the last 10 years with this uh, new knowledge. The author does make a point, it seems, like at the beginning of each battle throughout the book of kind of going over where they are technologically and describing their armor and what weapons they're using. And like you said, I think by the end of the the last battle we have here they're talking about the barding on the horses that sort of stuff so yeah so just in the course of 11 years we go from cloth armor and scythes you know very primitive equipment they didn't even have stirrups on their horses yeah (laughs) this is really just telling us how impressive the dwarfs are i mean they can teach that well we've got like 800 years of human history and development in like 10 years in uh in the empire <laughs> sigmar fighting naked to sigmar mm-hmm. with full plate yeah, sigmar's still fighting naked i think but i think that's just a cho- <laughs> i think that's just a choice thing. personal choice yeah. yeah he doesn't have to the surprising thing is if, if i was going to go looking for advice on stirrups and horse armor I wouldn't ask a dwarf. <laughs> now, I think there was one of the tribes that had already developed that technology independently. So we're heading into Blackfire Pass? We are. Yep. Urgluck Bloodfang. Brian, tell us about Urgluck. Urgluck Bloodfang is, of course, a war leader from the Badlands who's uh, pushing into the Empire. and has a host capable of destroying all the realms of men. He has a really cool wyvern. And a glowing axe. That's right. Ooh, yes. Glowing axe. Did they mention that some of the runes on Galmaraz are the same runes that were on his weapon, meaning that that was a dwarven weapon that he had stolen? Ooh, I didn't notice that. So what's Sigmar's plan? So we're going to stand in the pass with mountains on either side and let them come to us. Yeah, this is kind of a classic outnumbered force funnels their enemy into a position where their superior numbers can't be 
used to their benefit because the uh, geography is so confined that you're going to have to face your enemy on relatively even numbers. Which works great until you remember that he's got a, cha- a massive chariot contingent with him, which doesn't generally work very well in Thermopylae. And you remember <laughs> that the enemy has spider riders who can just flank him anyway. The spider riders get like a one-line mention and get thrown away without this turning into anything, just to tick the box. But this battle is a slog to read, or it was for me, and it is because there's so many missed opportunities that are replaced with, and now they killed some more orcs. It is just your standard, you know, the chariots charge in and these wild barbarian berserkers charge in and then Sigmar hits some people with hammer and things are going great and then things aren't going great. Then there's a piece of the line that's faltering. Graham McNeil doesn't really demonstrate skill in making combat visceral. It's very much as if you're looking at the the battle, you know, the, the Warhammer table from six feet above you're not really feeling the die rolls, as it were. You're not feeling the people falling. It's very much big picture, which Dark Age combat really wasn't. Um, You should feel the swords going in. You should feel them hitting bone. It should feel like it's a very animalistic encounter. And here it's almost, you're just deleting people by tapping buttons. I think it's interesting when you think about combat like this, You would be completely exhausted, basically, within, like, five minutes. And they talk about how these guys are, like, fighting all day. And I don't know if it's humanly or physically possible to exert that much energy over that period of time. It is if you can climb a Fauschlag. And you can do that by rotating your soldiers around, but that's this kind of practical detail that isn't really mentioned. You know, your front rank goes to the back and has a rest, and you're you, more people come in and this is the sort of thing you do after a unit a unit of orcs has broken but we're not that detailed here quite vague and quite generic we get mentions of goblin archers we get one mention of trolls but it's generally mob of orc boys charges there's a wyvern there is and there's, there's a mention of what appear to be black orcs which only came into existence in the great revolt a hundred years before this and they don't really get any focus. They get this one mention and it's, come on, Graham, you can expand on some of these interesting bits more than just have another group of orcs charging it massacred. I mean, so we have this description of the battle that hits, here's the different unit types in an orc army book. But ultimately, Sigmar's forces are being pushed back and he's in trouble. And he knows he needs to do something to win. And he decides to stop sh- channeling Charlemagne and start channeling Samson and jumps off a big rock and proceeds to kill over a hundred orcs single-handed while surrounded by them. We leave the historical Sigma and go into the biblical patriarch judge Sigma, you know, that where this is the Sigma that massacres 10,000 Skaven with an ox jawbone, um, as per Wilhelm, the Dogs of War special character. His magic item is the jawbone that Sigma uses just to murder every Skaven that ever came near him. I didn't know that they actually have someone using the jawbone of an ass to to murder Skaven instead of Philistines. This this is why the Samson comparison is very apt. Yes, Sigma is untouchable. He can just take on the entire Orc army solo and uh, kill them one at a time. He can do this all day. I mean, Graham McNeil writes this as if this is a risk. He jumps off this rock into the middle of the Orc army at a moment when his, his forces are about to collapse. 
his men seeing him are so invigorated by love for him, by recognizing his power, all that stuff, that they charge forward too. And ultimately, this turns the tide of the battle. The, the orcs go, oh, we were winning, and now the humans are you know, pushing forward. And the, and the dwarfs that are with them, because uh, the High King actually, I think, comes to this battle. But they're pushing forward, and now uh, it kind of breaks the, the morale of the orcs. And this leads to the beginning of the end of the battle, and the orcs flee, and they're defeated. Just leadership five. <laughs> so humans have been saved. No, we've got we've got a wyvern left. Oh, that's right. Okay, well, what happens? It depends on which version. So in the novel, it flies in, and Sigma kills the wyvern, and then brains the warlord. And he he says a bit of a speech about it. Someone who is more reverent might want to say that again, but as if. <laughs> Yeah, actually, does, does someone want to describe that scene? Clearly, I don't even remember the scene, so I probably shouldn't describe it. My notes ended at page 326. <laughs> <laughs> he says you will never I'm, win. I'm looking forward to the alternative, actually. Okay, in the life of Sigma, the Wyvern flies in, and Sigma is... He's out of it now. He has done his Samson bit, but he is exhausted. He cannot raise his hammer again. And one by one, like one standard mook from each tribe rushes in to save him and takes another chunk out of the Wyvern. Or, you know, also simultaneously, but describes it, you know, one at a time. And the Wyvern then falls on the war boss and pins him. Oh. And it is this big mm. symbolic thing of... Actually, we've had the time of heroes to forge the empire. It is now the time of men to hold it together and work together. Oh, I like that. Oh, see, that's way better. It is. It just—it's a bit of an Olianus pious moment. If there were twelve of them and they all dogpiled Horus, and that's how they won. Now you're referencing 30k, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> the empire is created in that moment. Sigmar is recognized as the leader of the empire. Got the various provinces and what becomes the electric counts. And Kurgan, after the end of the battle, King Kurgan says he'll make the empire a gift and give you to one of them a special weapon, which becomes the rune fangs, which symbolize their authority over their province. Which I chose to be Alric's punishment. And let me explain. Kurgan volunteers Alric to make the finest swords ever made. Now bear in mind that for a dwarf, that's a very serious promise. And he's going to got to make one of these finest swords ever made for each of the future elector counts. Uh, it takes Alric a hundred years to do this. What King Kurgan is doing is removing Alric from the board as a piece for a century. And the way I interpreted this is that the King Kogan has now seen the consequences of giving technology and all this help to the Empire, to the humans, the different tribes. And what he's going to do is put the brakes on that. Ooh. He's going to take Alric yeah. off the board. The you are not going to be giving Pendrag tips on steel manufacturing anymore. If the humans continue on this trajectory, they are going to overtake us technologically and the dwarves are going to be irrelevant within a few hundred years. Sneaky dwarfs. Sneaky dwarfs. Again, that is my analysis of the dwarf geopolitical situation. There isn't that much in the book that supports that, but that's just how I interpreted King Kurgan's decision. All these are Carrie's theories, all right? I don't, I don't read the situation. Oh, Carrie theories, in quotes. <laughs> 
we're ha- we're gonna have a section of the podcast called Carrie Theories. It does mention that I think yeah, I think you're right, Carrie. When kind of tasks him with forging the rune fangs, that it says something about Alaric gives him like a, a funny look or something because he like knows how serious of a of a charge it is. Isn't it an insult of some sort to make him forge swords because aren't dwarves like you know against swords? It seems like most of their weapons are also tools. So swords are kind of... I th- it feels like a sword is a... It's like a slight, like, oh, I wouldn't forge swords. Like, that's for elves. Actually, Mike's made a great point about it being an insult. Not necessarily because it's the swords, but if, if you know your Dwarf Army book, you know that you've got the rule of pride. Making the same sword 11, 12 times with the same rune combination is a massive no-no when it comes to runecrafting. Ooh, yeah, point. If we continue down this Kerry Theory rabbit hole, Kurgan's not only saying, take <laughs> hundred, on that. 100 years of your life, forget about it, You've now got a different job. We've also got, you are going to essentially be ostracized from the Runesmiths Guild. I love it. I love carry theories. These are the best theories ever. I mean, you can imagine Alric's mindset after 100 years of having to do this punishment. This now explains why he's mad and why he decides to put the Rune of Eternity on a lump of warpstone. Uh-oh, now you're getting into stuff I don't know about that we'll have to talk about later. Nemesis Crown Campaign, 7th oh. edition. Oh, that was right when I got into work. It was an awful campaign. <laughs> It's like the least remarkable campaign of the last 20 years. I do remember that. I remember it being a big deal and then everyone being like, so let's just play regular games. Yeah. So let's do our final thoughts. Someone tell me what this taught you about the Warhammer world. Through the power of friendship, it is possible. (laughs) As long as you're willing to sacrifice your friends to some orcs. Is that no? Yes? Is that what we learned? Sometimes you're going to have to murder some people. to make them your friends. I thought it was interesting to read a formative book because so much of the Black Library is set in, you know, contemporary empire times. But I think one, one is about enough. Yeah, I mean, I do think it was interesting to just hear about Sigmar and his life and how things got set up. Yeah, so I think just generally that and then seeing like character of the different provinces. If I knew more about each of the provinces in the current imperial time, then I'd probably get more from knowing about them in this time. But since I don't know Sterling from Reichland from Midland, it was less. But I do think it, it was helpful. In that way. A joke, but it, it was helpful. This guy's supposed to be our leader. <laughs> I, I mean, that's just by force. I'm like Sigmar. You have to follow me because I've got a hammer. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Destiny. I'm kind of in the same boat. I don't really know the individualities of each of the provinces. So it was it was kind of cool to see, you know, the, the barbarians or the writers and all that type of stuff kind of come together and in very quick succession. I do think the origins of the relationship between the dwarfs and the humans was good to know, like how that happened. So if people don't know about that, this does tell you. A lot of it was general lore that you'll learn like in the sixth edition rulebook or, or stuff like this, kind of like very briefly in a few paragraphs, it'll tell you about the origin between the, the men and the dwarves, but it obviously gets a lot more detailed with the various tribes and the actual formation story. This book establishes beyond all reasonable doubt the orcs eat humans um the original witch of the bracken world is put in a pot and boiled and eat by orc raiders put that into context of you know war back to ravenna's idea of if only we didn't go to war and didn't have to go to war no they're gonna come and kill you and eat right that's a good reason to go to war whether orcs ate humans or not was that an open question 
It's not usually referenced directly. We get it a little bit in some 40k stuff, but it's not something they focus on massively. Over the years, I don't remember ever reading a story where the orcs explicitly ate the dead. That's more of an ogre thing. But this book, we have the orcs put the put the human witch in a pot, cooker, eater. Maybe it was just those orcs. Maybe those are cannibal orcs. Why are they the exception? <laughs> Why do we want them to be the exception? <laughs> All right, so I'm guessing that the original hag in a pot was not your favorite character so who's your favorite character brian you get you get first shots who's your favorite my favorite character i liked um actually liked alaric a lot he was just a, a fun character to read in the in the middle of the sections that he pops up in evan i actually liked the hag because i <laughs> thought it, it was the uh actually no. the hag was my favorite <laughs> no the uh just because she actually like had a like a plot through line through the whole book she kept it 100 for sure you did get to know her a little bit how she sees herself and her role but like she knows her future yeah and they they go into the backstory of the the hags of the bracken walsh a little bit and you get a little bit of like sympathy for them and they're kind of mysterious and fun so i think there's not a lot of mystery in the narration of this book so that's one part that's kind of kind of fun and mysterious. Carrie? I think Alaric could probably be my favorite, but I'll focus something on uh, Kurgan Ironbeard just for all of those Kerry theory rationales that I've already put in. <laughs> all right. No, we've we've done en- we've done enough uh, helping the humans now. Let's dial it back a notch before uh, we take it too far. All right, Mike. Yeah, I don't have a favorite character. I didn't think anyone stood out to me as particularly compelling as a favorite or super interesting. Back in Drakenfels when we read that, I thought Tetliff was like by far my favorite character. So I do have favorite characters in books, but I don't think anybody in Hell and Hammer was really calling to me. Yeah, I do think I agree with Mike in that all the characters were fairly straightforward, right? Like you didn't get just a ton of character personality. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward. I guess if I were to say who I'm interested in seeing do a little bit more although Wolfgart was like portrayed as unthinking and brutish in some ways he restrained or helped guide Sigmar as much as Pendrag or more and so he ended up more thoughtful than maybe you would have thought so I think in the the next two books of the Sigmar series he might have some stuff that would be interesting so Plus, he's a married man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mabe or something like that. She chose him, just say. All right, well, we have two more questions. If you were to make an army or a special character or a battle a scenario from this book, what would it be? I mean, I'd quite like to see a, it's really hard not to say Age of Sigma for this, a Sigma time period human army list. Um I know Army's Project did bandy that idea around about 10 years ago, and then it got dropped from the to-do list and then never came back. But it would be interesting to fight something like Blackfire Pass with this mix of units, with human chariots, with berserkers, with a bit less technology available, but potentially some boosted stats, sort of Marauder style, on your sort of more visceral combat troops as opposed to guys in puffy pajamas anyone else maybe some sort of mode where uh you're climbing the foshlog <laughs> oh i want to play this with mike i'm gonna make mike play that one with me what happens if the defenders just start emptying chamber pots on your head <laughs> it's gonna be very slippery rock and have a crappy day oh dear All right, mike what about you i don't know it's hard, it's hard to think of something given the fact that Warhammer Fantasy Battles is set 2,500 years in the future, and we don't really have a 
a corollary between extremely primitive human tribes and armies that we can we can play from. So, I don't know. Didn't really have a good answer for you. All right. Well, for I know for me, I thought uh, that the Battle of Astrophon Bridge would be really cool, where you have maybe some sort of settlement or whatever, and there's some troops inside it that are holding off a lot of orcs, and the orcs are trying to get in, and then at the same time, there's some human cavalry coming from the rear and attacking them. So it's, can you force all the orcs to turn around and face you so that the humans inside this settlement survive. So I think those types of scenarios where you have a goal of helping someone survive and it's against overwhelming odds at some points, I think those can be kind of fun. Can your unit champion named Trinavantes do a challenge for one round and soak up a round of combat? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dying heroically. Ryan, have you ever used the siege rules out of the Blood in the Badlands supplement? No, I've not. I have, yeah. I'd recommend it. You could basically do that just with those rules that already exist, with the relief force coming in to try and save the day. Awesome. Well, I'll have to try that sometime. There's been various scenarios that I've seen in, in yeah. White Dwarf Battle Reports from, from back in the day with similar kind of themes of like, you take 2,000 point army, your opponent has a 4,000 point army, and you basically have to survive long enough. Survive yeah. for a certain amount of time or whatever. Yeah, definitely. I've I've seen some battle reports with those. The beauty of this is you could just both turn up with your standard 2,000, 2,400 points battle, use these rules, you don't have to change your army list at all. I was kind of thinking that like a Warhammer Fantasy roleplay supplement based on the uh, Grey Vaults that uh, Sigmar and Bjorn found themselves in would be kind of cool. That is cool. Do you play that? I don't. I'm open to playing it. I don't know when I would have time to ever play it. I probably don't have time to play it. But <laughs> it, it would be cool to like read about, I suppose. Yeah, no, that is that's a great idea. I mean, you could even do undead type of spirit army or demons versus humans. I mean, in some way, I'm not sure exactly how, but I think you could ghost do, humans. Especially, you know, use some of those AOS models. Not everyone likes plastic models here, Mike, but uh, use some of those. I don't like AOS models either. <laughs> uh, you could use some of those. Hey, it was plus plastic. You don't stand a chance. All right, last question. There were 11 tribes that fought at Blackfire Pass. One tribe refused to come. We didn't We didn't mention them, but the, the Jutones didn't come, and the Bretoni didn't come, and then I think later they're going to flee to become the Bretonians. But of the 11 tribes that fought, how many tribes would you give this book in rating it four okay four tribes i'm not gonna make you name the tribes (laughs) so tell me something you liked about it i like that it tried to cover a period that while there was sort of you know lore about there hadn't really been much of a human element to so i I liked its ambition okay someone else how many tribes out of the 11 i'd probably give it a six myself i enjoyed it enough for what it was it was just the legend of sigmar even even with its uh, ridiculous bits it was a, a a delve into the into an era of the setting that i was wholly unfamiliar with so i kind of enjoyed it from that point of view okay i'll give it a six as well one for every month it took me to read it <laughs> all right yeah i guess i'd have to give it a four i didn't really enjoy it um too too much the problem it's 408 pages i think and it's very long but it's also not very deep the dialogue is very kind of like marvel universe levels of kind of cheesy kind of cliche basically the entire time and the characters are all stereotypes and they're not very interesting or or deep and I appreciate some of the lore from like the origin perspective, but with regards to good solid literature, I don't I didn't think it was very good. All right. Well I'm gonna give it a seven because as I read this book, 
I was never feeling compelled to come back and read it so that I could get to the end of it, find out what happens. But I don't think that's the author's fault. And at the same time, there was nothing where I said, I just don't want to read this book. It didn't always feel compelling that I wanted to come to it, but it it never felt like I said, I think that I can't go back to it because of this. And also, I did like getting to know the lore, and I did like seeing the development of the empire, and I did like uh, seeing the different cultural aspects and seeing how his conquest or his uh, gaining the, the connection with each province related to that province specifically, right? So uh, was it prowess? Was it honor? Was it wealth? What was it that drew them? Protection. So I did enjoy that. So uh, that's why I'm giving it seven. All right. Any thoughts before we go? As you may have noticed, the Herd Stone is going through a cycle where we, uh, every other month, we talk about an army book and then we talk about a Black Library book. So we've talked about a Black Library book today. Our next book will be uh, the next produced army book, which is, who wants to tell them? Oh, is it Skaven? It is. It's the rats. So be prepared (laughs) to be stabbed in the back to get sick, to be blasted with lightning, and to be stitched together into a giant rat in our next army book. And to read 12 pages of FAQ. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing in our next episode of The Herdstone. Make sure to visit us at the Discord. Uh, send us any feedback you have. Visit us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. All right, well, that's all we have for today. We hope that next month you'll gather around the Herdstone with us again. We'll have to cut that, <laughs> Carrie. Come on. <laughs> lowering the, lowering the, werewolves, the that's werewolves. Yeah. I thought Evan was the troublemaker. Sorry. <laughs> I can be if you want. And now my memory, uh, I've lost. Who's the, who's the fruit fly guy? Anyone remember from biology class? No. (laughs) Blast. Okay. Jeff Goldblum. It was a brilliant analogy. Uh, (laughs) He's he's the the fruit fly and like the the tulip bulbs or something. I don't remember. Uh, Mendel. It's it. That's it. Maybe it's Mendel. You can always look it up and reinsert it later. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go with Mendel. Or or, um, or perhaps. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll cut this off. Carrie, who's the who's the queen that rebelled against the English or against the Romans? Boudica. Yeah. So I I picked up tones of Boudica from from her, and I'm totally going to set that in as if I remembered her name, and I'm going to cut out Carrie reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a problem. All right, well, that's all we have for today. We hope that next month you'll gather around the Herdstone with us again. <laughs>